Hello and welcome to the Joshua Greeny Podcast. Today I have a guest on whom I've never actually met in person. Um, I initially came across him on Facebook and some Facebook group discussions, uh, maybe some aggressive debates, but in a, in a good way. And I've spoken with him only once before, at least to my knowledge, uh, over the phone. And, well, I haven't mentioned his name yet. His name is Bradley. Do you go by, you go by Brad, though, correct? Uh, Brad or Bradley, either one. Okay, Brad or Bradley. So the same when people ask me, do you go by Josh or Joshua? I, I, either one. <laughs> right. So, but I think that's right. I've, we've only had one phone conversation. And I th- did we go like four or five hours when we talked? Yeah, it was, yeah we, we, we had a long one there. That was a good conversation. Yes, it was. And we ended up, we didn't actually finish it, guys. Like for those who are listening, uh, we did not finish the conversation. We we pressed pause on it. So I'm anticipating that however long we go, and it maybe it won't be four or five hours, um, but even if it's around a good, you know, two to three hour mark, that's not going to be the end of it. You know, that might, we might have even a part one, part two, depending on, depending on how much time it goes through. So anyway, so I guess what I'm saying, Brad, is you already have a, an open invite to come back at some point. <laughs> Absolutely. So go ahead and uh, go ahead and shout yourself out, man. Just to, I'll say this much: Brad is also a podcaster, and I've listened to his podcast, and he's got video. So at some point, I'm going to have to get that on mine. But for now, we'll just do audio. <laughs> I got you, man. Uh, yeah. So uh, like like Josh said, um, my name is Brad. I am with. Uh, Alternate Media is the name of the ministry. is spelled A-L-T-A-R-N-A-T-E. Uh, so kind of a, a double entendre there, uh, a shout out to you know the altar in the temple and what have you. Um, I'm the lead apologist at Alternate Media. Uh, my colleague, Seamus, is the lead historian. Um, so and- Seamus has a history of all the times you've apologized. Is that what you're telling us? Uh, more or less. Yes. <laughs> That's the dad joke for the for the day, guys. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, oh no, 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 no. There's never enough dad jokes. That's pretty much all we all me and Seamus do is dad jokes. So, <laughs> <no>. <laughs> but uh yeah, our our focus is predominantly uh in a more uh traditionally Semitic and uh Judaic understanding of the New Testament uh, within the time frame of its historical context. Um, so, you know, our, our goal really is to kind of bridge the gap between Christianity and Judaism, uh, and maybe help uh, create a little understanding between those two worlds where they seem to oftentimes be talking past one another. Um, so that's, uh, that, that's our, our, our goal, kind of our mission. And, uh, we've recently launched a website. Uh, the first of this month, and there's several articles on there. Uh, some of some of which I may actually be referencing tonight. And uh, merch store, we you know we try and keep things funny. Uh, if anybody who's seen the podcast, you guys know we we try and uh, be lighthearted and laugh about some stuff. So we've got a couple of items on there that are uh, intended to be humorous, and and uh, we're trying to find a niche for for biblical humor. Actually, uh, even even some we ventured into like biblically based dark humor. Uh, <laughs> so we're we're working on that. <laughs> Which there's utility for that. Now, do, do you mind if I shout out the one you mentioned about uh, Jonah? Oh yeah, 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 for sure. <laughs> okay, so guys, we were talking before the the podcast started, and he mentioned one. <laughs> it was a coffee mug. And it was so for those of you who aren't familiar with Jonah and the Jonah and the and the whale or the big fish. So this is a prophet. It's a very short book in the Bible in the Old Testament. 
basically, Jonah's told, hey, you got to go and minister in a city called Nineveh. You need to preach the gospel, preach a message to them to keep them from basically God destroying the city. Well, Jonah didn't want to go because it was a really bad city. He's like, I ain't going there. And so anyway, I, I want to let you, uh, you do the punchline, Brad, but the mug says... <laughs> So in quotations, like it's 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 quoting Jonah, and it just says "nah," and then it's you know Jonah basically, <laughs> which is perfect, man. I mean, so guys, that's that's Jonah in a nutshell. God says to Jonah, "Hey, I want you to go do this," and he goes "nah," and it didn't work out until he did it. So, <laughs> yeah, anyway, I thought that uh, was good. Another idea we've passed around, and this is where kind of the biblically based dark humor comes in is uh, from 1 Kings chapter 3 with uh, Solomon and uh, the, the two ladies who are having a dispute over the child, right? And so it's, it's, it's just going to be that verse reference and then halfsies. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good, dude. That's good. Because that's one of those where it's like, it's almost, a, it's like an inside joke. It's like, unless you know, then you're not going to know. And then if, you know, I... See, I like that because that's that's another thing. You could be drinking from it, right? You're drinking your coffee or whatever, and somebody goes, "Hey, what what's what's that about?" And then you have an opportunity to discuss about the Bible, and it's a humorous thing, <laughs> right? So that's you know, it's that's a good tactic. I like that. Creating opportunities, you know. <laughs> when I mentioned to, to Brad before the podcast, I said I like the fact that they're using humor because I feel like humor has been under attack lately in our culture. Definitely the comedians. Your comedians are, and it's again, it's not like, hey, these comedians didn't do horrible things. I'm not trying to justify that, but why are they attacking the comedians? Like, why are those the ones they're going after? It's like there's something about comedy. You know, I've heard um, I've heard people talk about this. I've heard Jordan Peterson talk about this. I've heard I think even Dave Chappelle mentioned some of this. But when you are speaking the truth, sometimes the truth can be very, very funny. Like it, that's underestimated to a degree. And so if you're a good comedian and you're pointing out true things within the culture, and you're putting it in a, in a style that makes it kind of look absurd or funny, well, that could be irritating to people who don't want it to look absurd or funny, and so then they start shutting them down. And so it's like, well, how do, you shut the, you know, how do we shut the comedians down? Well, let's dig up their past and play off of other stuff that's going on in the culture to kind of, you know, what is it, the cancel culture or whatever. So all of those kind of political stuff, I'm like, I think there's stuff going on behind it. I think humor is a very good weapon that can be used uh, to kind of bring perspective that otherwise people wouldn't have. And it just lightens the mood. So we may have to, uh, if, if we start getting intense on some of the stuff, we'll try and throw some humor in to kind of lighten it because we're going to go into some really deep topics. Um, and I'm not entirely certain exactly how it's all going to pan out, which that's part of why I wanted to talk with Brad about this because the two things that I said I wanted to discuss, at least to kind of start it out, and I wanted to you know pick some simple stuff, right, to talk about the simplest things. Um, <laughs> I wanted to talk about God, basically the Trinity, the concept of the Trinity, um, as is presented within a lot of Christian circles, and then um, sexuality as a whole, uh, but connected to Song of Solomon, which was something we had we had touched on the Trinity as like a tail end thing from our last phone call, which was again a couple months back, and then the Trinity, or no, the Trinity is what we touched on. The sexuality and Song of Solomon, we had we had spent a little bit more time on, and we never finished it. We had to kind of put pause on that. So, right. And I told Brad, I'll say this, and then we'll turn it back over. But I told Brad beforehand, I said I think that these two things are connected in some way, 
Um, I just kind of have an intuition about it. And then I started thinking about it a little bit, a little bit. And I was thinking, well, I know at the very least, I mean, there's the statements in the New Testament that God is love. And there's multiple different Greek words for love. Now, you could look at which one it says, but I almost think that there's some... So I guess my intuitions have kind of led me down like, okay, if agape, you know, the unconditional love, the way that people you know, kind of shorthand say that, might be the thing that is like the... the I've, I've thought of it like with, what is it, with... um. Down at the atomic level, you've got the was it electrons, neurons, and protons, and all of those. But they're all one thing. But there's three parts. Like there's all these different metaphors. And again, that touches on the Trinity and stuff. But the idea of maybe agape is like the main thing. You know, it's the whole thing together. But inside of it are all these different components. So you could have the the was it phileo love, the brotherly love, or we get words like Philadelphia, the city of love, or brotherly love specifically. Is it like storge? Is that like the family love or something? Like anyway, there's we'll get into this, but there's different words, and so I've wondered. Okay, well, is the eros or e i or e r o s like erotic love? Well, if that couldn't have originated outside of God, so maybe it's somehow connected to that. So I think those two things go together, and then Adam and Eve were made in the image of God, and they're told to procreate and have kids and all that kind of stuff. So anyway, I kind of saw some of that even just in somewhat by intuition, but I feel like both those topics are going to, we're going to intertwine those like, I don't know, two DNA helix strands or whatever. (laughs) That's my attempt at a metaphor, but. Absolutely. I, I, I definitely think these, uh, both topics will be fascinating to get into, uh, when it comes to, especially how, how our understanding of you know erotic love uh is really should affect our relationship with god um because believe it or not like judaism has a lot to say about that <laughs> mm. see and this is guys i'm not as well versed in some of the knowledge of like the 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 Ju- judaism culture or what would you, what would be a better word for that? Like Hebraic culture or Hebrew culture, Israel, ancient Israel. Like what would? Go ahead. Um, well, yeah, you, uh, really, you could just call it. Uh, you could just say Jewish culture. Um, but it to say Jewish culture is a little more broad, I guess. Uh, specifically, Orthodox Jewish culture or or ancient Israelite culture. Okay. See, I, I like the the sound of ancient Israelite because there's something like, oh, it's a, it's ancient, it's cool, it's hidden, you know, it's it's something from the past. Like, I, I, that's what all the hip kids nowadays, at least, it's like, oh man, this is like old school, like the ancient OG, the you know, original gangster, or what, like all. So, so maybe right. that's a, maybe that's a shtick. Maybe that needs to be on a uh, on a coffee mug or something. <laughs> the OG Absolutely. perspective of of scripture. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I'll let y'all. I'll let y'all figure out the the fine details and all that. But so, go ahead. You want to give some kind of a lead into that because that's. I feel like you just touched on a uh, maybe like kind of started to open a door to a really cool like there's there's a room behind it with a lot of cool stuff in it. So go ahead and lead <laughs> off in that. <laughs> I'm intrigued. It, this is this is really where I guess the beginnings of uh, a discussion that could be had on the Trinity would begin. Um, because essentially the, the Trinity came about as a doctrine in early church history, 
as a means of trying to understand God and uh, understand the nature of what is God. Um, now, for me personally, I am I am not a Trinitarian. I do not um, I do not understand God uh, that way. So uh, you're a me, heretic. Get off my podcast. No, I mean- <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> no, guys, I hate to bring oh. it to you, but I'm not entirely certain I am either. And so that's why I'm having Brad on. But even if I were, I still would want to have him on because I like to have different views. So keep going, man. Keep going. I had to throw that in there, though. (laughs) It's actually funny. Uh, Some friends of mine earlier today uh, were having a conversation uh, via text. And um, somebody, one of them had been asked, you know, what was the moment that you became a Unitarian? Uh, Which I use that term loosely. I, I typically like to say a strict monotheist. Uh, because Unitarianism comes with certain other baggage that I, I still technically don't necessarily agree with, or or even there are other uh, older pre-Nicene modes of the Trinity that still technically fall under a Unitarian title, like modalism. Modalism is pre-Nicene Trinitarianism, uh, but for whatever reason, that tends to fall within the boundaries of Unitarianism today, and I'm not sure why. But and the Nicene Creed, what what what's the timestamp on that? So the Arian controversy, uh, which is that is the controversy that surrounds the Nicene period. So uh, what we what we generally understand to be uh, the Council of Nicaea mm-hmm. is actually an individual council. Um, is a series of councils that took place. Okay, uh, so it was actually multiple meetings that they had. It wasn't just one one time event, right? So, okay. matter matter of fact, let me. I've got some notes here on it that are really helpful. Um, Grab those. I'm going to go over and just literally pick up my coffee. Uh, I, I made some coffee before the podcast, guys, and I got to get some more of it. So keep talking. I'm going to take my headphones off just a second to race over there. You got it. <laughs> Let's see. So, yeah, the the Council of Nicaea, as we know it, um, the first Council of Nicaea, and let me not quote this incorrectly, uh, would have been 325 AD, right? Would have been the first Council of Nicaea. Okay. Yeah, I, th- I think I knew there were at least two two councils. Is that right? But well, I guess more than that. Well, yeah. So, it, and this is a long. We don't have to go over the entire Arian controversy. So, f- first, understanding the Arian controversy essentially began uh, around three eleven A.D. Um, and it went on and didn't end until. Ooh, Three, I think three, three eighty one technically, or three eighty three A.D. Uh, so this is something that went on for roughly seventy years before it was finally ended. Um, the first Council of Nicaea in three twenty five would be where it was codified among the Trinitarian uh, Nicaean fathers that Jesus was God. Uh, then later they had to have the Council of Constantinople because they realized they forgot all about the Holy Spirit and they had to establish that the Holy Spirit was also God. And so that's – I mean that, that that's putting it kind of 
<laughs> kind of bluntly, but that's more or less what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, now, uh, legalhistorysources.com actually has an actual uh, outline of the chronology of the Aryan controversy. So it'll give you the, you know, the year that whatever event happened pertaining to the Aryan controversy, uh, the names involved, and then the event as it happened. And it's it's a and that's really all it is is just a concise list of everything that occurred within the Aryan controversy um, to give you an exact timeline of when what philosophies were happening and a lot of it was political. Um, yes, there was very Keep little going. theology involved in it. And that's that's a, that's a point that I don't think a lot of people know. So guys. I'm talking to people that may – so I'll mention this, Brad. I probably should have said this beforehand. Some of the people that listen to my podcast, they might not even have even a religious background at all, but they do have an intuition to some degree like, man, I think it's all – you know, some of it might be political or this. They might not say that, but they're like, I don't know, man. I don't know if I can trust this kind of stuff. It's like, fair enough, guys. I think what we're talking about right now might even legitimize some of the kind of – you know, the suspicions behind it because, you know, with Constantine and, and – um, I mean, I remember even talking about when the when the KJV, like when that was put out, it's like, well, why is it called the King James Version? It's like, well, why are certain words not translated? They're transliterated. And uh, there, some of that was very much political or even you know yeah. the church politics. So there's a lot of stuff that goes into this. So just the, hey, shut up and just trust what the Bible says, word for word, this, that, and the other, and all these things. It's like, okay, hold on a second. If you're a thinker and you ask good questions, you can't just do that. You have to delve into some of this stuff. And you want to, by the way, if you're a deep thinker and want to look into it. Not everybody cares to look into it. But if you do, you should not have any shame in doing that. So anyway, I wanted to mention that to, to anybody who's listening who's kind of looking in going like, what are these guys talking about? Like, <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. And I didn't mean to go too far off on a tangent on that. Just, no, no, you know, keep me going. personally, uh, my, you know, my view of, of God uh, does not fit within the confines of what was established by the Athanasian Creed, um, and I, uh, I I find it in a way uh, confounding of who and what God is, but also limiting of who and what God is. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's that's kind of where I come from. And believe it or not, this is actually the single greatest dividing point between Christianity and Judaism. Interesting. Um, this, yeah, this is this is what keeps conversations from happening between Judaism and Christianity is exactly this topic. Um, so I do profess in a, a, a faith in Jesus as the Messiah, or you know, at alternate media we we refer to him by his Hebrew name, which would be Yeshua. Um, so I, I do believe that he is Messiah. Now there's more complexity to that uh, because in Judaism there there is an understanding of there being two messianic comings, um, and this is where the title son of David becomes important because in addition to there being a son of David, there was understood that prior to the coming of the Messiah who would be called son of David, there would be the son of Joseph, right? And these are um, typological titles, right? Uh, the The reason that the Messiah would be called son of David is not necessarily because he would literally be coming from David's loins, though that is true, Um but it's also because this particular Messiah would be a conquering king, 
right? And he would he would conquer the world, uh, liberate Israel from her oppressors, unite the lost tribes, right? The ten lost tribes, mm-hmm. and bring them back into Israel. Um, but thing there would be the son of Joseph, which is hearkening back to right the the, the typological figure that is hearkening back to is the Joseph of Genesis, whose brothers sold him to Egypt and who suffered as a servant in Egypt, right? Um, and this this messianic figure, it's, it's understood in Jewish theology that he would come and he would die, and his death would bring about repentance and ultimately the coming of the son of David. So this is an area where Christianity and Judaism also talk past one another, as Christians will look at Judaism and insist that Jesus is the Messiah, when you say the words the Messiah to a Jew, his brain thinks the son of David, right? The conquering king, the one who will liberate Israel and return the lost tribes. Jesus didn't do these things. Hmm, okay, okay. So in their mind, he can't be the Messiah. Now, if you if you approach them with the caveat that, okay, I, I accept that he could have fulfilled the office of the son of Joseph, May not agree with you, but they're at least willing to hear you out. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you first and foremost, if you lead with, I am not a Trinitarian, okay? I do not worship Jesus. I do not pray to Jesus, right? These are these are things that are only rendered to the one true God, right? But I believe that Jesus was the appointed agent of God, the the Messiah that was anointed by God. Um in terms of the son of Joseph, right? They're willing to sit and listen. But oh, that's okay. That, is, that that's key. Uh, at least to me, it is like so. Because thank thank you for saying that, Brad. I'm I'm stuttering over my words here because to me, I'm always looking for like what's an opening. You know, what's a uh, a means of finding common ground or a way to kind of bring down defenses and be like, okay, hold on a second. I agree with you on this. Let's talk. Like, I want to open this up. So what you're saying is, uh, actually, could you just repeat that that key point there? Um, so like in the future, if I'm talking, if I'm, if I'm dialoguing with Ben Shapiro, let's say. <laughs> hey, shout so out ben to Ben. Shapiro, you want to come, come on the pa- podcast, man. No. <laughs> ben Shapiro may actually be more willing to have a, a dialogue on it regardless because he is a more open-minded individual regardless, right? Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's already used to hearing views that he disagrees with and he will legitimately hear you out. But, but yeah, if you were to sit down and have a dialogue with, you know, um, I'll say like Rabbi Manus Friedman. Um, now you probably don't know who he is uh, again. So it's kind of like, it's kind of like the independent fundamental Baptist sect. There are, there are pastors that are uber famous in the IFB. They're not famous anywhere else because nobody else is independent fundamental Baptist. <laughs> so Orthodox Judaism is kind of the same, right? There are people that to me are famous, right? But you mm-hmm. wouldn't know who they were. Uh, because Dennis Prager's have, talked about that. He's like, you know, dude, are you famous? And he goes, amongst those who know me, I am. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> so, yeah, it, if you wanted to start a dialogue, it would it would be very important, first and foremost, to, to come out and uh, acknowledge the absolute oneness of God. Um, I have... Uh, several Orthodox Jewish friends now, uh, some of which actually have been very eager to kind of help the ministry that I'm currently involved in. 
um, you know, they, they, they want to do their part, I guess, as an advisory role. They've told me, Hey man, reach out to me anytime that you want. Uh, if, if you want to have me on the podcast or if you, you know, if you, uh, have a question about something that you need a further explanation on before you talk about it on the podcast. Um, and, uh, it's, it's been wonderful, but all of them have at some point said, yeah, I mean, if you guys were Trinitarians, we wouldn't be having this conversation right now. Mm. Um, you know, like they to to them, it is idolatry, and there is absolutely no room for uh, an understanding discourse. Right? They may hear they may hear uh, somebody out, um, but they're not really going to sit and consider what you've said, right? And see that uh, if, to me, that's respectful. It's going like, okay, if this person thinks that they're that you're trying to get them to worship an idol, it's like, well. You don't want to get them to worship an idol. So if they're thinking that, then how about you not start with saying, hey, I think you should worship this thing that you think is an idol. If anything, start with, hey, man, I don't want you to worship an idol, and I don't believe in idolatry. So let's talk about what we're supposed to do with, and, and I'm guessing you're referring to, so they might see Jesus Christ as as a, well, I don't want to assume, but they don't see him as as the son of God, meaning like, the same essence of God. They see him as a human being. Like Jesus was some, you know, religious type leader or fanatic or something. Is that correct? Or am I completely off base? Yeah, they would see him as, and this is, this is dependent on how well they've done their historical research, right? Um, because there are parts of the Talmud that reference people who went by the name or, or are called, you know, Yeshu, um, or Jesus, if you will. And, uh, it can be very easy to mistake these figures as being the Jesus of the New Testament. Um, you'd, you'd have to be pretty diligent in doing your historical research, and there there are even some Orthodox rabbis who have written books ex- explicitly explaining that, hey, these Jesuses that we read about in the Talmud, that is not the Jesus of the New Testament. Um, but uh, But yeah, they would see him as a like a, a great uh, healer and exorcist of the uh, the early Mishnaic period, you could say. Okay, so they would still recognize him as a as an actual historical figure, but they don't have the conclusion that he was you know God incarnate, you know the Word made flesh or something like that. Right. Well, and see when you, when we use these kind of words, when we use the Word made flesh, when we use um, the Son of God. Uh, this is this is again where we Christianity tends to be talking past Judaism mm-hmm. with these phrases because it means something different to a Christian than it does to a Jew. Yes, right? yes. So to, Keep going. To, to to be the son of God um, to a Jew is is not anything that actually connotes any any form of uh, deity at all. Yes, right. <laughs> Because, <laughs> like you know, uh, what what do we read in 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 Exodus early on? Um, God tells Moses to tell Pharaoh to release his firstborn son, right? So to be a son of God is really to be an Israelite in their vernacular. Um, and this this actually even goes into their understanding of like Genesis six and the whole debacle with the Nephilim, uh-huh. right? Uh, sons sons of God there they don't even interpret as sons of God but rather sons of the rulers which they still understand to be those who were living in righteousness up to that point pretty much, um, and so you know dominion was given to them over the world at at that point, 
and then like things like you know uh, the word made flesh um that uh, things like that are if we're understanding first of all an understanding of what the word is uh it's very mystical and I, as a matter of fact yes. there is an article on our website uh, exactly about that um for those of you who want to go to the the website is alternatemedia.com uh, I wrote an article specifically addressing the subject of the word, right? In the beginning was the word. Um, it is a very mystical phrase. Um, and, and guys, for those who, who aren't familiar, this comes from the – so in the New Testament, you're probably familiar with the term New Testament. The Gospels, meaning four different accounts of gospel just means good news, but it's four different accounts of basically Jesus' life and ministry. You know, Jesus, the, the Christ. Uh, Christ just means Savior. That's not his last name. That's his title. Um, so John, and, and Brad, I've said this before uh, in, our, in our phone call, I think, because when you mentioned about John's account, you know, his gospel was, um, was more mystical, like he was more of a mystic. I was like, that's why I like it, because I've literally been telling people. because uh, Okay. I don't want to get off on a tangent here because I do want you to finish your thought, but I've been telling people, both saved and unsaved, let's say, Christian or otherwise, I started calling myself a Christian mystic because at least that makes people pause and go, wait a minute, what do you mean by that? And then that distances myself from the quote-unquote churchy Christian crowds that I try and steer clear of or that I don't identify with, let's say. So it kind of gets both people, you know, ruffles their feathers a bit and makes them ask questions, but... I mentioned to you, I've always liked the book of John, and it starts out in the beginning, so in English, in the beginning was the word, and that's logos, but in the beginning was the logos, and the, the logos was with God, and the logos was God. He was in the beginning with God. So that's the English translation, like the first two verses. But then the question is, what does it mean when it says, in the beginning was the word? Like like you, you were starting to say, and I'm going to toss it back to you here in just a second, but that term... I remember hearing a quote from Ravi Zacharias where he said, and he was an apologist who's passed away at this point, and there's controversy around him, but I don't care. I still think he said a lot of good stuff. So for those who are Ravi Zacharias haters, get over it, man. The guy helped me out a lot in my life. But okay, so (laughs) he made a statement where he said, it's more like in the beginning was the definition. It's like the word was the thing that the ultimate reference point, the defining thing, the thing that gives definition to all things. It's 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 the meaning, the the definition, the foundation, the word. So it's more than just in the beginning was the word. Yeah. <laughs> so let me right. toss it back over to you on that. Yeah. Go, go ahead. Go ahead. So yeah, when the so the article that I referenced um, that that I wrote, uh, you know, shame shame on me for referencing my own work. No, um, do it, but man, it, do it. I want to read it actually. It was called uh, "In the Beginning Was Jesus." Right or in the beginning was dot 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 Jesus question mark right mm-hmm. uh, and that's because that's how people read this passage right and it's it's because initially growing up in the church we're taught to read it that way right? yes. we're not actually taught to properly exegete this passage we're told we'll read it and then somebody tells us now that talking about Jesus and so you instantly in your head right if you're not reading out loud. In your mind, you're when reading silently, you're reading in the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God, right? But that's not what the passage says. Yes, and I think it's incorrect. It sounds like splitting hairs, but I think it's an important hair to split if it is that. <laughs> right. And one of the one of the I think most 
missed points about it is that John is not using he's he's not using in the beginning by accident. I, when when we hear in the beginning, Josh, what what's the passage that we typically think of? If I say the words in the beginning to you, what are you thinking of? Uh, I don't know if I'm going to give the right answer, but I'm thinking Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Is that absolutely? That is that is 100 the correct answer. Okay. Um, <laughs> John is not doing this on accident, right? Uh, he is hearkening us back to Genesis on purpose, and and what what at least in my interpretation, and I bring this out in in the article, right? What he's hearkening us back to Genesis to is the word in the beginning itself, right? The word in Hebrew is Bereshit. Bereshit, however, does not literally mean in the beginning, at least not contextually as it sits in the passage. Um, And there's been, there, there are a number of rabbis who have written on this and they've even questioned, right? Their, their idea, because, because everything is supposed to be absolutely perfect uh, with with God, and so it seems at surface level that you would start the Bible with a word that begins with an aleph, right? Because it's the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. That's that that's kind of their that's kind of their thinking, and so the fact that the first word of the of the Torah begins with the second letter of the alphabet is first of all that's that in and of itself is enough to pause for question interesting uh, but more than that the word bereshit is what we call construct form right um it contextually is not proper for the statement being made. It is uh, – it's a grammatical error, you could say. Um, and that is – that creates even more of a pause to question, right? If you if you wanted to say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, in proper Hebrew, you would say, Barishana bara Elohim et hashemayim v'ta'aretz, right? In or which loosely translates as at first God created the heavens and the earth. The beginning being construct form actually reads as kind of a in the beginning of dot 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 insert whatever is missing here. God created the heavens and the earth. That's how that reads, okay. literally. Now I'm not saying that there's something missing, and there's no rabbi out there that would ever interpret this as the, as though there's something missing. Um, but what they view right because they understand the Torah to be perfect, but they understand that there, there are imperfections in the Torah, if that makes sense. So would that, in I, other words, maybe there could be, it, this could, now we're getting to the limits of like, we're getting to semantics, but, but I'm not trying to make it a, a semantical argument. So it would be something like maybe it's perfect, but it's incomplete to a degree, like incomplete in the sense of not everything that is God didn't have to put every single little detail about his entire universe and everything into the scriptures. He just had to put a sufficient amount for whatever his purpose was for writing the book, let's say. If we would that make uh, No, the, the so Jews believe that that God did 
put his entire revelation, the totality of the revelation of God is in the Torah, the first five books of Moses. Ooh, um, that's even cooler. Uh, Keep going. <laughs> the, the, the imperfections, right? There are, there are certain words that are misspelled. There are certain words that are um, not proper for the context, right? They're, they're grammatically incorrect or they're syntactically incorrect, right? There are what we could call errors that are in the text of the Torah. However, the Jews do not view these as errors. They view these as flares, right? It's, it's like the verse has shot a flare up so that you, you, you examine that particular part a little closer because it stands out, right? It's, it's, not, it's not technically correct. And so we, we try and dig deeper into that to discover possibly a deeper meaning from the verse, Right? Can, can I interject? Like, why did go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead and finish your thought. I have a, a thought that came to mind, but finish your thought. <laughs> no. They and so they view these right. They they look at things like this. Like, okay, so wait. Why did God tell Moses to write that that way? Why would he not use proper Hebrew? Why did he Why did he tell Moses to write this word there instead of the proper word? And they they study that they study multiple aspects of it um as it relates throughout the torah and they come up with a conclusion and that's kind of where i'm i'm leading but go ahead with your thought well so this was something that came to my mind and okay i think most people who are who are at least in the uh 20 year old to 30 year old range are familiar with the band 21 pilots because they they're big um, and shout out to 21 Pilots. I love them. I, I love their music. But there's a song um, which was very popular. I think, I think it's the one called Stressed Out. But he says in the song, he goes, um, I wish I didn't have to rhyme every time I sing or sang or whatever. And I, I forget all the lyrics before that. But he's basically, he's rhyming. He's rhyming his, his lyrics. And then when he gets to the point where he says, I wish I didn't have to rhyme every time I sang, it doesn't rhyme. And so right. it's like it literally highlights, oh, I'm saying, man, I wish I didn't have to do this, and I'm literally not doing it. So it, it's incorrect. It's imperfect, but it's that's the point. Like the point is to go, huh, and, you know, it's a little bit of a, of a joke in there too, or he's, he's doing that. So exactly that popped into my head is like I can see, uh, I mean, we do, I guess what I was trying to say is we do this, like artists do this anyway. People... I remember in uh, in college having a an English professor who was very philosophical. His name was uh, Dr. Robert Miller, and this guy was like a Star Trek fan. He played tons of piano. Um, he was you know, like very good at music. He built a tree house in his backyard on four different trees, and it had running water and electricity. Like this guy was like eccentric, you know, the the eccentric professor that everybody thinks of when they think of an eccentric professor. But he was real life, and so anyway. He had talked about, uh, with regard to like English and grammar, he says, you have to learn the rules and learn how to follow the rules. And then, once you've done that and you've practiced that, then you can break the rules and you can do it basically artistically or um, a, there was a better word he used. But the idea is, now you can break the rules and you do it in such a way, because of your mastery of the, of the language, you're doing it for a purpose. It's not by accident. And so right. I can see that being like, well, okay, where did we get that idea from? Like if we can do that just by our own, you know, English professor saying this, and oh, this is kind of cool. 
maybe God does that. Like maybe that's where the inspiration comes from because it highlights stuff. If it's all like perfect to a T, OCD, well, then what about the little mistakes here and there, quote unquote? I mean, even like this goes, this makes me think of like Sherlock Holmes mysteries where now you've got, you know, one word is capitalized or, or one letter is capitalized in the middle of it. And you go, why is that? Oh, there's a message here, you know. That and, is. That is exactly how the text of the Torah is, actually. <laughs> See, that's that's actually cool. <laughs> yeah, it's it's you know there there definitely is you could almost say like a code to it, um, but it's it's like a case by case and individual basis. Like put put it this way, the Jews actually they attribute meaning to every individual letter that is in the Torah. I've heard that. Um, yes. And we'll actually be getting into a little bit of that as we break down this word Bereshit, right? Okay. Um, Because as you read it literally, it doesn't make sense. Now, Hebrew is made up of words that are made up of smaller words, right? And so the first letter there is the letter bait. Letter bait is technically in and of itself a word, right? It means by or with, right? Mm -hmm. So... And I'm saying word because mm-hmm, I, I don't know this guys, but I'm following with them. I just want to clarify, I'm no Hebrew scholar. <laughs> the 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 word bereshit, right, is technically bait reshit, right? Bait being with or by, and then reshit. So reshit here is a noun. Right? So with reshit, God created the heavens and the earth. Now we have a noun. We don't know what it is. Like so, how how do we comprehend that? Now, the word reshit is used a number of times throughout the Torah. Sometimes it is a noun, sometimes it is not, right? And there's there's a there's a there's a slew of words that are like that. Like um in in Genesis 3 when God says I will greatly increase uh your labor to Eve, right? That word increase there is also the same word for locust, but the difference is that locust is a noun and increase is a verb. So Okay. <laughs> So yeah, it's it's it, it's kind of a it's it's a crazy text, and understanding where a noun and a verb are is is very important. Uh, so, of all the times that Rashid is used throughout the text of the Torah, uh, and even elsewhere in the Tanakh, as a noun, it almost explicitly refers to two things, which is interesting because the the letter bait, right? Remember, remember the letter bait is the the first the first letter here. That has a numeric value of two. So that plays into this also, right? Uh, so you could even read the verse that there are two ray sheets. So at, biblical numerology confirmed. Ba-boom. Hey, that, is, that is a little that, – that's a literal thing. Yes, I believe it is. Um, <laughs> and the the two ray sheets in question, right, the, the two things that the word ray sheet is associated with all throughout the text of the Torah – is the Torah itself and the children of Israel, the, the, the Jewish people. Mm. And so the verse can be translated as thus, with Israel, with the people of Israel, God created the heavens and the earth. Now this would take on a more symbolic or a more allegorical uh, interpretation, which is to say that with the, with the purpose of establishing Israel as a nation, God created the heavens and the earth, right? In other words, because that was his ultimate goal, he created the heavens and the earth to achieve that. That's not really the more popular. More popular and the one that you will hear most often from Judaism uh, in multiple sources is the association with the Torah, 
right? So with the Torah, God created the heavens and the earth. Mm. How they understand that. Now, we have to understand what the Torah is to them. To them, the Torah is not just the five, the first five books of Moses, right? And it's not just the 613 commandments. Um, you know, it's not just the compiled law of Moses. Uh, it is those things, but those things are to better illustrate to us what the Torah is. So the Torah is the very nature of God. Right? Mm. It's like God took that, that nature of his, and he it down so much that it could be written on paper. And Dude, that, that is what this is Torah giving me is. chills as you're talking about. It. So it's like a it's like translating. Uh, I, I'm borrowing this from other people. I think even Jordan Peterson has talked about this. But dude, this is getting to to stuff that like I, I, I've used the term intuition. I think before the podcast, where there's some things that like I feel like I've gleaned more from intuition, but it's not disconnected from ideas and thoughts I've had. Um, I, I guess I'm just saying I've, I found more utility in even intuiting things, which I, th- I think it's the, I think intuition is underrated and partly because people get wrong ideas and then just stick with them and they just stick and completely on with intuition. But okay, l- let me, let me say this and then I, I want to give it right back to you. I've thought about this because Jordan Peterson has mentioned, uh, you know, about the word made flesh as like, okay, what if you took this whole concept, whatever this logos is. Now he interprets it a little bit differently. You know, he's looking at it more from a, you know, not a, a, um, well, not a Christian lens or, or whatever. He was just looking at, I guess the way he says it would be a psychological lens. And he's like, okay, if the definition of perfection is whatever this term logos is, the word or whatever, what does it mean to have the word made flesh? And the way he kind of worded it was, okay, you take this concept and then you translate it. You know, could we translate this this concept into a human being? Now, the way I've run with it, just to make it a little bit easier for you, know, the average listener and people who are you know fans of pop culture, I've used this analogy before. I'm like, okay, let's say you, in the in the um, the Batman trilogy by Christopher Nolan, in Batman Begins, you have Bruce Wayne, you know, played by was it Christian Bale, and he is Bruce Wayne. But he has this idea of the Batman. So the Batman is this concept. And then the whole film is about him becoming that. He takes the concept. He starts to practice it. And then he becomes the Batman. So he's the embodiment of it. The Batman became flesh in the body of Bruce Wayne. Now, that's a little bit different than what people would say. Like, I'm not trying to say that's what happened with Jesus because this would be more of like the idea of, okay, he was a, some people, well, okay, guys, for for those who are crying heretic, I'm not saying that my position is, or that what I'm trying to argue is that Jesus was an average human being who, um, you know, was a sinner and did all this stuff, but he rose up like an avatar level thing and embodied the avatar. This isn't avatar last airbender. I'm not talking about that. What I'm saying, though, is I think the themes are very similar. So the concept of taking, okay, here's the idea, and then I embody that. It's like, okay, back to what you were saying, Brad, the same idea. You have this, this the, the Torah, whatever that is, that is, okay, God's essence distilled and translated down to like a really low resolution. That might be like a Jordan Peterson thing. Low resolution enough to be able to put on you know, pen on paper and pass that down. But at the level of resolution that it is, it's accurate, it's sufficient, 
and whatever errors it has in it are done on purpose. Does that? Am I kind of getting close? <laughs> well, yeah, absolutely. Because you know the the idea of what is you know what is written being able to be put into actual practice, right? It's this idea that when when to a Jew, when you obey the commandments of the Torah, when you're doing the things that the Torah commands you to do, and you're you're avoiding the things that the Torah says not to do, you are acting the way that God would act, right? You are you are. Making godliness manifest in the flesh. Like if that makes sense, right? you're, you're demonstrating the personality and the nature of God to the world, right? You're making it accessible. You're making it observable, right? And this is what's important when it comes to in the beginning was the word, right? So according to this interpretation, the Torah would actually be the very first thing that was ever created. And now for my naysayers, right, because it says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now we just broke down the word Bereshit and what that means um, and how how one interpretation is that with the Torah God created the heavens and the earth – uh, this would be this would be predicated on the idea that God created the Torah first. Now, my naysayers, um, the text of the Torah already tells us that it's not a literal statement, right? That heaven and earth were not the first thing that God created, because the very next verse goes on to talk about the water. Well, where did the water come from? When did God create the water? Mm-hmm. Right. So we already know that this word bereshit is not intended to be taken in a literal context. Okay, I think I'm tracking with you. Right. So and 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 so if we're if we're trying to insist that the first thing God created were the heavens and the earth, well, now we have to answer where the water came from. It's just easier and it makes more sense to kind of just go along with the the idea that so he created the Torah, which the Torah would be, you know, the uh the embodiment of his his essence and his nature. Uh, and he used that to create the rest of creation, to organize it, to um, to add order to the chaos. And right? that makes sense it, to me. Just what you just described makes sense to me. I don't know if other people cry heresy or whatever, but that makes sense to me at the very least. <laughs> I think it, I think so it the, has to be that way, but, but keep going. That would make this word that John is referencing, right? In the beginning was the word. What's he talking about? Well, another line of questioning I like to ask people is, okay, so John is talking about this word. Now, he's talking about it as though the audience is already familiar with what he's talking about. So clearly, children of Israel had a concept of what this word was prior to Jesus. What was it? What did they understand this word that John is referencing? What what did they understand it to be prior to the incarnation of Jesus. And mm. the, the simplest answer is the Torah. The Jews would tell you the Torah. If you were to ask them that question, they would tell you the Torah. Right? So John says in the beginning was the word. Now, mind you, there's a little interesting factoid about this. This would make the Torah a nature-creating device, right? Mm-hmm. Now, there is one rabbi uh, who he goes over this in much more detail, much more beautifully than I have here. Uh, his name is uh, Rabbi Lawrence Kellerman. Um, he's got a video that's up on YouTube you can watch uh, called A Rational Approach to the Divinity of the Oral Tradition. And he, he, goes, he goes over this. The idea of the Torah being a nature-creating device, 
Right. So he he takes he takes his you know his copy of the Torah and he's like, so you're you're telling me that if I if I if I take this thing and I click it on, right? Bzzz, then you know then then you know God took this, he turned it on and he created the heavens, bzzz, and then created the earth, bzzz, right? You know, like that's he 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 comes away from the ridiculous and he says, okay, so like what you're really telling me though is that if I take this and I point it at myself and turn it on can create a new nature in myself. Mm. So, so first what he says, this is the importance of the first verse of the Torah and under, understand how big that is. The very first word, the very first word of the very first verse of the very first chapter of the very first book of the Torah is single-handedly one of the most important secrets to understanding the Torah. <laughs> um, and what he says is the importance of this is if somebody says, you know, I'm just – I'm not cut out for the faith, right? Uh, I'm not cut out to be religious. I'm not cut out to, you know, live in the ways of God because I'm a homosexual, right? I can I, – I, I, it's in my genetics uh, and I can't change that. Well, the first, the, the first verse of the Torah says, well, don't worry about that. The Torah <laughs> can take you from the inside. Oh, say that again. Say that again. Is, is that the Torah can change you from the inside, right? You just have to apply it to yourself. You have to apply it to your life, mm. right? And that's because what it does is it does demonstrate godliness. It, it demonstrates who and what God is. And so for Jesus to be the living word, right, uh, in, in the Torah observant community, we say he is the Torah made flesh, right? The word made flesh, See, I've, let me just mention this real quick. I've come across these this statement, you know, the Torah, Jesus was the Torah, or statements similar to that, and I've questioned them. This has been on Facebook. I've questioned them um, with, well, okay, Brad, you'll know who I'm talking about, but Kimberly Duffy on her page, you know, there's tons of people. That's where we first met was on, on some one of her, uh, uh, I think, posts that she put and a bunch of different comments underneath it. And just a shout-out, guys, I want to shout-out Brad just for those who are listening, but... I was impressed with Brad's rebuttals and challenges to my questions and saying, hey, dude, I think you're, nope, I used to think this. Like, you knew what you were talking about. You knew what I was talking about to a degree, as, as far as I could tell. And so I remember being like, okay, this guy is is interacting with my stuff. He's listening to it. Like, he's not just dismissing it. Like, you're actually interacting with it. And you're putting some good questions forth. And so, okay, now I'm losing track of uh, that. that <laughs> Uh, you can uh, you can pay me the twenty later, Brad. But um, or give, <laughs> give me a, a free coffee mug or something. No, <laughs> but anyway, back, back to uh, back to uh, the, uh, the 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 Torah statements and things. I, I've seen those in on either her page or other people that I'm friends with on Facebook, and I've questioned them because I wasn't just actually excuse me, I was not exactly sure what was being meant by it. And I'm going, well, hold on a second. Is this this or this? Well, what about this? And so I've kind of challenged them, but not in a mean way. It's like I'm going, I don't understand this. What about this? So the way that you've just described it to me, I feel like you've kind of opened the door to, let's say, uh, understanding it better. So I don't feel like I've fully grasped it. I'm going to be you know, letting that marinate more. But that makes sense, the way you're describing it. And it, maybe it makes sense because it it resonates with the mystic side of what I consider myself to be. Like it makes sense on a, on a spiritual level. So anyway, keep going, man. 
<laughs> I just wanted to say you're, you're giving me you're giving me the tingles over here. I'm like, woo, this is good. <laughs> Dude, yeah, no, this I I and I get what you mean because you and I are cut from the same cloth that way. Um, I I definitely tend to uh, to lean more in in the the mind of the mystic, um, which is you know that. That alone is fascinating when you get into to some of the Jewish philosophy uh, on on the creation and uh, the and what they call the anatomy of the soul. Right? Mm. Um, there's there is so much depth to that, and uh, it. Uh, I'll I'll put it this way: I read through a book series uh, called Lessons in Tanya. Um, now the 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 Tanya is a, an inherently mystical document. Um, that is written specifically to prepare the Jewish people for uh, the coming of the Messiah. Um, and it it expounds on, like I said, the anatomy of the soul, the way that obeying the commands affects the soul and the way that sin affects the soul and the way that things like fasting and uh, giving in charity affects the soul and, and whatnot. Um, and I, I, I gotta say, coming away from it, it's a, it's a five book series. Um, it, it takes you through an entire year. The, the reading cycle, it has a reading cycle. It starts with Hanukkah, and then you will, over the course of the year, go through these five books because each day has an allotted reading portion to it. And uh, I don't see the creation the same way that I used to like just my view of the general world around me has shifted dramatically mm. uh, because of it. So I, I think you would love that actually. And to be honest, so much of what is in it is applicable to comprehension of the new Testament that it's shocking. Actually it's, it's almost like an in-depth exposition on Paul's epistles okay. from, from like an actual mystically minded Orthodox Jew. Um, it doesn't cite the New Testament, but if you if you if you are familiar with the New Testament, then you'll know you'll know what is applicable to where when you read it. <laughs> gotcha. Okay. Well, say say the name of that again, because I'm definitely going to put a link to some of this stuff as much as I can in the um, in the description for the Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you find this. Right now, it's on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. But I'm going to try and get it on other other podcasting sites. Anyway, it's called Lessons in Tanya uh, by Kahoot Publishing. Um, so Kahoot is uh, the the website that you would purchase it from. Okay, and uh, occasionally they'll have like ridiculous sales on on the whole set. I think the whole set is like a hundred eighteen bucks plus tax. But like, uh, I, I logged on one time just to check and see, and it was like on sale for like sixty nine ninety five. And I was like, all right, I'm getting a second set. <laughs> <laughs> nice. But uh, but yeah. It, any, anyway, all of this to say that like there is a there is another way, a more Jewish way of understanding John's words that that actually play right into exactly how mystical the words are. I mean, what a cryptic way to start your gospel! In the beginning was the word. Right? What, what are we even talking about there at that point? And so there there is a way that these words would have hit the ear of an actual religious Jew at this time. Right. And and this is this is what I understand to be one of the interpretations that would have been applied there. And so, you know, to to say that the Torah to to say that Jesus is God, 
uh, you you'd have to also be comfortable with saying that the Torah is God. And to the same degree that you'd have to be comfortable with praying to the Torah and worshiping the Torah. And this is not even something that Jews will do, right? They, 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 they don't pray to it. They don't worship it because it, in as much as it is the nature of God, right? It is not God himself. Okay. Okay. I'm tracking with you. I'm tracking with you on that. It'd be and, like somebody praying to their Bible and saying like, oh, Bible, dear Bible, please help me, Bible. Like I'm praying. It'd be something like that. Right. Okay. Right. Now, they, they do still understand an, an intrinsic connection, right, between the two. Um, the, the, the term that's used, and, and I won't get too deep into this because this goes deep into some uh, – I, I would have to spend probably the better part of three hours explaining other parts of Jewish mysticism for this to, to make sense. Um, but they, they call it contractions, right? So the idea that God is an all-consuming presence – uh, that's why no no man can stand in his presence because they'd be instantly consumed. Mm-hmm. Oh, so, if you could understand the idea of God maybe uh, filtering himself down or or contracting himself down layer by layer, level by level, uh, to a point where it first of all is not all consuming, right? His his presence wouldn't be all consuming to us because you figure how would the creation sustain itself in the presence of an all consuming God? Hmm. This is this it's it's an inherent paradox. Uh, so one of the ideas is that in order for God to to create a creation that would not be consumed by his his absolute presence, he would have to create somewhere that he's not, or at least somewhere that he's not in that level of purity. Okay, okay, I'm still tracking with you. This is again touching all those mystical ideas and things I've wrestled with in my mind in the past. And he, guys, he doesn't even know this. Like you're touching on stuff. I've oh my goodness, I'm. As you're speaking, Brad, you're literally triggering thoughts and ideas that I've I've mentioned to people, conversations I've had here and there that go back even to like two or three years ago. So one in particular, I remember talking with my my cousin's husband and my cousin um, over maybe it was like a July Fourth thing or something. But I remember mentioning for for lunch, I was saying like, what if what if the the world that we're living in, the the level of, of like the layer of reality is almost like, I forget exactly how I worded it, but it was like, think about like the, the, the original Mario game where it's two dimensional and it's a very low level resolution, very, you know, symbolic and stuff. And so, you know, maybe when God's creating the world, he's creating it with, with, so I, I was wrestling with a bunch of like Neo in the matrix idea. Like what if we are, what people would say with, with regard to, um, oh, what's the word? Not hallucination. A a a hologram. I think is the idea that some you know, and I'm not arguing for that, but the idea that we could be in like an avatar form in the same way that like on Snapchat, you know, you have this little figure that represents you but isn't you, but kind of looks like you, but it's two dimensional and cartoony. It's like what <clears throat> what if we're something like that, and this is very low resolution. Because this is the only way that we can interact with. So here's me tying it in to interact with with God, and so He's using Himself as a symbol in this way. But He can enter into it, and I, you know, I was I was wrestling with ideas like that just for funsies. Like, hey, what if it's like this? And I think I remember even saying, I was like, what if uh, the inspiration for you know for the rebellion that that happened with whatever the serpent is you know, the adversary or, or, you know, that, that character, 
What if he was like, hey, you know, I'm a high-ranking being up here, and you're creating this lower-level dimension in which you're going to put you know, creatures and things, and you know, maybe some of the animals that were created. So like, okay, I'm, I'm going to run with this for just a second, just for the, for the heck of it. But all of the descriptions of the weird you know, angels and divine beings that have like a head that looks, you know, four heads or a head that looks like four different animals and things, I was like, what if the heavenly host, whatever those are, are watching the creation and they're seeing God go, hey, I'm going to make this you know, lion and I'm going to make this tiger, I'm going to make this eagle. And they're going like, hey, that, that, that kind of reminds me of you know, so-and-so, this, this heavenly host character over here. Like, hey, that kind of looks like you in symbolic form. So it made me think of stuff like um, the, 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 the Pixar film Inside Out where they go inside like the deconstructing part of the brain where it, like they slowly get reduced to symbols. <laughs> and so there's like a right. symbolic representation. I was like, what if that's kind of what God was doing? And they're like, hey, I reckon that's kind of like you, or that's how you, oh, that's an avatar for you, or this, that, the other. And then God goes, oh, I'm going to make man in my, my own image, and I'm going to use him as like a an avatar-type figure representing my, my essence, and I'm going to put him over it. And then maybe one of the, the angels or one of the characters is kind of like, wait a minute, why are you going to make... You're gonna make man. You're gonna make this creature. Now he's gonna be. I, I'm higher being. Like I want to have a higher status in this lower level. Like I was wrestling with stuff like that. Like what if that was part of the, like hey, I, I feel like I should have a, a bigger symbolic representation. All right, well I'm gonna represent myself as a serpent, and I'm gonna come. You know, so I was wrestling with all kinds of stuff like that. And the reason I'm saying this is, guys, I read the Bible a ton. I've called myself a Bible nerd. I like coming up with out-of-the-box ideas, and I told this to Brad beforehand. I'm literally drinking coffee out of a, a coffee mug that says, Think Outside the Box. It's got a tic-tac-toe board, and it's got what the game looks like it would be a, a, a tie. You know, it's the, you know, the cat wins or whatever, but it's got a, a, an O that is written outside of the, <laughs> outside of the tic-tac-toe box so that the person could win and have three in a row. So, like, that's the way that I like to think. I like to think outside the box and come up with random stuff because even if I'm dead wrong and even if I come to the end of it and I go, ah, this is heretical, it was a fun roller coaster ride. And maybe there's pieces that I can tie in that actually are true and I just got to the wrong place at the end of it all. Who knows? It's fun. Don't, you know, all you MCU fans and nerds, I, I, I resonate with you guys too. Let me do it with the Bible, man. Like, let me do it a little bit, just just a little bit. Okay, I'll, I'll, let me throw it back to you. I was going to say, it's, it's, it's interesting you bring all that up because, like, it, it, what I said earlier is, is almost the opposite for any other religion except Christianity, right? Um, it's, 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 it's very hard for a religious Orthodox Jew to have a legitimate actual discourse with a Trinitarian Christian, but not so much for anybody of any other religion. Mm. And part, partly uh, because there is a lot of crossover within their mystic thought. Um, and it's if, if if you could understand it to be this way, like there may be a concept uh, that – exists within Taoism, right? Now, mm-hmm. Judaism may have a very similar concept, and they may view the Taoist concept as maybe just a bastardized version of what was the original. Uh-huh. And that is that is a lot of, of Jewish thought. And so 
when it comes to the being of God and the creation and, you know, are we in the matrix? Are we not in the matrix? Right. Um, uh, God, God attempting to represent himself with the creation. Um, this is, this is, I, I have actually, I have liked to phrase it this way, that, that God is a fractal. Um, Ooh, that's good. Especially. I, I'm going to quote the, you on that. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> especially the Fibonacci fractal, right? Yes. The, 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 the one <laughs> fractal that is that is based specifically on the Fibonacci sequence because it's like you can zoom in closer and no matter how you zoom in, all you're going to get is the same sequence of self-reference and you can zoom out as much as possible and all you're going to get is more of the same uh, sequence of self-reference and this is essentially how the creation works and guys this less. is where buzz lightyear went because he said to infinity and beyond and he went into i mean that's fractal right there <laughs> right that's why and those so statements exist by the way I'm, I'm making a joke but at the same time i think there's something to that <laughs> certainly you know it, it's one of those things where uh, the the best thing about comedy is the element of truth behind it, you know, <laughs> <laughs> which we talked about. Yeah, keep going. So you know the, the this idea of of a fractal, this constant sequence of self reference. Now, it, does the creation take on that exact ideology? Um, well, it really depends on how you're thinking about it. Um, the creation itself comes. From God, all of it comes from God. Every single aspect of it, both physical, metaphysical, what you know, what have you, everything comes from God, and so everything exhibits a particular attribute of God or a particular part of God's nature, right? Uh, and the whole of creation does this. And you know, so you could even theorize that uh, that okay, maybe this is like where the idea of spirit animals come from. You know, I know that me personally, I. I have a personal connection with uh, with wolves and dogs, and I couldn't explain it. It's been since I was a child, two years old. Um, my mom would tell you, like, I would beg and beg and beg her just to open this particular book that she had that was nothing but pictures of wolves because I, I just felt a connection with this creature. Um, and I had no I, – I couldn't explain it. Uh, today, it exhibits itself much more so in my personality. My personality is the type that I don't – you know, if you're not really in my pack, if you're not in my inner circle of friends, um, you know, it, it, there's there's a there's a great deal of less importance. Whereas, like, you know, I if you if you threaten one of my close friends, that's I take that very personally. I'm more likely to lash out at you in violence than they are mm. um, because of how personally I take that. Dude, um, let me interject this. I've literally used the idea of spirit animals to talk with people who are like not Christian at all, who are maybe more into like new age stuff because I'm like, Hey, you ever wondered what Jesus is like Jesus, the Christ, what his spirit animal was. And they'll look at me like, what? And I'm like, dude, no, seriously. Like the Bible actually says something very similar to that. And they're like, really? And I'm kind of, you know, again, I'm going for that common ground thing, but I'm trying to talk in a lingo they understand and intrigue them. And so then I'm like, Hey, if you were to guess, like, what would you think Jesus Christ would be? Um, as a spirit animal. And they're like, ah, oh, sometimes they'll throw up something like, I don't know, man. Uh, but I'll tell them like, well, he's called the lion of Judah. So if like, if somebody were to ask Jesus, Hey, you know, I, I could see Jesus talking with a new ager and the new ager going, Hey, what's your spirit animal? Like that's the stereotype, right? You know, what's your spirit animal? <laughs> and him going, 
Uh, I don't know. Like a lion or a lamb? Like I could see him doing something like that and then engaging in conversation. So when you talk about spirit animals or resonating with like, hey, dogs and wolves and then kind of seeing personality traits, I don't think that there's a coincidence with that. Like I do think there's something to that. And just on a personal level, like I've had similar things too with regard to like wolves. I've always liked Wolverine when I came across uh, like that character. Um yeah. But the, the one of as of late has been, and I say as of late, meaning even back in 2017, I remember telling somebody, I was like, bro, I'm a tiger. Like, I'm a tiger. Again, the eye of the tiger, like those the, that song. Right now, it's 2022. It's the year of the tiger. Um, I bought a Lego set, which I've mentioned this multiple times in my podcast. Shameless plug for my, my Lego hobby collection type thing that I've done over the years. But it's a really nice-looking... Uh, like creator set, it's a more of a uh, like for older ages, not necessarily for for the youngest ages because it's a complex build. But it's a tiger, and you can move its limbs around, and it looks pretty stinking good. And um, shout out to Joe Burrow, who I've finally figured out who he is, guys. Guys, I'm not from Cincinnati, so for all you Bengals fans out there, I do know who Joe Burrow is. I've been told that he is the savior of Cincinnati, and uh, I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's what I've named my tiger. That's one of his names. His name is Joe Burrow, just so I can remember that he's the quarterback for uh, for the the Cincinnati Bengals. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh yeah, it's like the idea of spirit animals in 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 a more Judaic sense. The the recognition would go like this, right? Because there are so there are understood to be you know ten divine attributes. Um, and there, whenever you see a depiction of like the Kabbalistic tree of life, a lot of people confuse what you'll see with chakras. It has nothing to do with chakras, but it, oh, it, it, keep it is going, man. This is amazing. Keep going. You touched on another thing. Keep going. <laughs> it's understood to be the divine attributes of, of God. Right. And so if you, if you think, if you think about it, right. And we understand that the creation is itself right reflective of the creator because everything comes from the creator then everything comes from one of these divine attributes at the very least if not more right as human beings we're complex creatures we're built up of multiple of these attributes we're as a matter of fact we are intended to exhibit all of these attributes and that's partially what the commandments help us do that's what, that's how Jews understand the torah is that they they help us to exhibit these attributes but it is still understood Right? that the soul may stem from a singular one of these divine attributes. That might be the root of where the soul comes from. And so... Bro, that's amazing. Keep going. I'm not even kidding. Like, you are blowing my mind right now. <laughs> if, if we understand this concept, right, and let's take the wolf. Let's say that the wolf is, in, is, is, is an animal that is, is created as the embodiment of a particular one of these divine attributes or a particular pair of these divine attributes, right? But we'll, let's just say a particular one for argument's sake. Um, if, if the root of your soul is that same root, then it's only natural you would feel a connection to this animal that exhibits that attribute. Mm-hmm. Right? Because you, you, you come from the same source, you are quite literally, in, in, a, in a very esoteric sense, cut from the same cloth. Oh, that's cool. That makes sense, right? And and so this is this is this is what's beautiful about getting into some of the the more Jewish mystic ideology. Um, 
But so, yeah, the, the, when you understand the creation this way, right, the, the idea of a triune God is so limiting when you consider that in the grander scheme of things, right, all of creation, and this is, this is where, this is where the naysayers, right, uh, when when I make the statement, I, typically what I get is, "Well, that just sounds like pantheism." Uh-huh. To which my response is, <laughs> "To which my response is, well, what you believe sounds like polytheism." So, like, mm. can we can we just accept that, like, what you believe as a trinitarian is slightly more complex than the basic polytheism it sounds like, and that maybe what I believe as 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 God being all of creation and then something. So that's the difference between pantheism and what Judaism acknowledges as Hashem, right? As as God, as as the divine uh, Yod Hey Vav and Hey. Ooh, and I, I got to shout out Modest Yahoo because you said Hashem, and that word the, the first time I ever heard that was in the song "Chop 'Em Down" by Modest Yahoo, yes. who's a former Hasidic Jew, and he goes, "Hashem said to them," or something like that. There's the message to relay. I love that song. <laughs> <laughs> so Hashem for for just just uh, for a little education here. So a lot of Christians are familiar with like Jehovah or Yahweh or you know these these different ways of trying to pronounce the tetragrammaton, the the divine letters, the Yod and Hey and Vav and Hey. Mm-hmm. Um, Hashem means the name. That's Ooh. all it means. Jews do not say the name. Because it's for, first of all, it's forbidden by the Torah to pronounce the name. Yes. Um, <laughs> but 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 also they, you know, it's it's such a a holy name that they are protecting it from being misused and being spoken in vanity. Right. That's this is this is something that they're that they're protecting by not saying it. And so, rather than pronouncing the tetragrammaton, they will just say Hashem because it just means the name. Dude, that I did not know that that's what it meant. I knew it was a reference to God, the God Most High, but I did not realize it was literally means means the name. That's yes. cool. Thank you for that. I like that Hashem. <laughs> it's, and and it's you know I heard one rabbi. There's a video where he says that he's an atheist, right? Because he doesn't believe in God, but he believes in Hashem. And his point is exactly what I'm drawing out, right? He said, if you think about the idea of God, God is separate from the creation. God is this abstract thing that's over there, separate from me, who is judging me, and I have no connection to it that's in in any uh, in any way conceivable outside of a broad, um, you know, almost esoteric and abstract sense. Mm-hmm. Right. Whereas if you comprehend the creation as being emanated from Hashem, right? Mm-hmm. Then you are you are intrinsically connected to God. You are intrinsically part of God. Right? There's, yes. There's, Which there's an go ahead, intimacy go ahead. there that is that is paramount to your relationship with Him. Well, let me throw this out because this. Uh, I, bro, you are literally touched. Okay, so I can I can already anticipate people being like, "Bro, wait a minute! You're saying we're part of God? Like that? You're saying we're divine? You're saying we're like that?" Sounds like it's like no, no, no. Hold on a second. For those who believe Jesus Christ is God, you go to the New Testament and you have 
statements like "We are the bride of Christ." It's like, okay, well, that's different. That's di- we're two different things. You know, we're the bride; he's the he's the husband. It's like, okay, but what about when it says we are the body of Christ? Like when you look at your physical body and you go, okay, Jesus Christ is the head. Okay, so there's the head and then there's the body. But hold on a second. My head is connected to my body. I don't look at my body and say my body is not mine. It's my body. Like this, you know, I'm, I'm, holding, I'm, I'm holding up my hand. This hand is Joshua. Like if you look at this and go, well, who is that? Well, it's, it's part of me. It's, it's not just – if you had to give an answer of who is this and you had to give a name and you're looking at my hand, you would have to say if you were forced to it, that is Joshua. That is not Brad. That is Joshua. The DNA is all over it, whether you can see it or not. And so my point there is that's like pretty stinking close to being heretical and saying, I am God. That's pretty stinking close. But the Bible itself gets pretty stinking close. <laughs> there, There's another rabbi. There's a video out there of him explaining this concept to a Christian uh, right there at the Wailing Wall, and and he says there is a essentially there is a distinct difference between pointing at another man and saying he is God, right? There's a big difference between that. There's a big difference between that and saying I am God. There's a big difference between those and saying God is all, including me. Ooh, dude, that's okay. I can, again, I can see people. I can see the like, hey, dude, that sounds like the same thing. But here's the statement: Paul says, and he quotes something. I think it was Paul, where he says, um, "You know, in Him we move and and live and have our being." Am I getting? Am I quoting that right? Um, I, I'd have to know the specific citation, but oh, it sounds right. It's somewhere in the New <laughs> Testament. But yeah, he says he's quoting like the poets of in he's dialoguing with some like Greeks or whatever, and he says, "In him we move and and live and have our being." Um, it's it's like, well, what does that mean? Like, what do you mean to have our being in God? Like, so does it mean we're are we a part of Him to some degree? I think so. I, you know, if we can't exist outside of you know, God having created us, and okay, so again, this gets to the stuff where it's like it defies language to some degree, but yet that's all we have to use to describe it. So let's roll with it. So keep going. <laughs> yeah, even even in terms of your own body, right? So like you, you, you are an individual, but you as an individual are also an entire ecosystem. Yes. Right? You have all kinds of cells and little creepy crawlies in your fingernails and your hair on your skin like you. These are individual creatures that rely on your body like you to them is the earth to us. Mm. Right. They're all part of you. They all they all make up some semblance of what is you, at least in a physical sense. Right. This this is this is essentially partially how how the, the the creation works now it it's even deeper especially on a spiritual level when you when you understand so one of the ways that tanya expounds on this is to explain reproduction and this is i i think you're going to love this this little bit of a segue here okay right is that uh, a father bears a child Right now, the father bears a child because an egg was fertilized by a singular individual sperm 
that they use the word emanates from the father's brain, right? Because the brain is the master of all bodily functions. Mm-hmm. The, the brain, which is in the head, possesses all of the information that it took to be in that one little sperm. It's all of that information is in that one little sperm that fertilized the egg. And all of that information is what it took to build an entire human being head to toe. Air follicle to toenail, right? All of that complex Whoop, are you still information there? is bound up in there, emanating from the father. Hey, it, it cut out. You said all of that complexity, and then what was the next part? Oh, yeah. All of that complexity um, emanates from and stems from the sperm, which came from the father's brain, right? which the father, the father himself his entire body, everything that is made up from his brain was contained in an individual sperm that came from his father. Mm-hmm. So you, you see how the fractalization process just carries forward. And if we understand this to carry all the way back to Adam, who was the first creation directly from God's hand and God's mind, there's there's an intricate and uh, – intimate connection and this is also this is this is kind of key and paramount in in learning to love one another as human beings right because it's 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 one thing if i think of you as an individual human being who is completely distinct and separate from me and we're not really connected in any way other than the fact that god created us if we both stem from and emanate from the god that we both worship right because we're both in the image this is what it means literally to be in the image of god right um is that we we both come from that same individual source, and we're actually connected by that, right? You and I, as individuals, are actually intrinsically connected because of the nature of the fractal. Mm-hmm. So there's there is much more um, intimacy in the way that I should care for you as an individual and as another human being, because I'm not. We're not really disconnected. We we have a connection. Yes. Okay. Okay. Um, two two things. One that stuck out from a, a while back, and you brought it back. And so, in Matthew, the genealogy of, of Jesus Christ. It. I think it's in Matthew. Uh, yeah. Let's see. Matthew one. Matthew one. Doesn't it? Doesn't it end by saying, "And Adam, the son of God," or is that? New? Yes. I I believe that is. If it's not Matthew, then that's the one that's in Luke. I think it might um, be in Luke. Uh, let's see. Just... Let me look that up real quick. Yeah, I've got. Uh... I'm looking it up on uh, on online with with Matthew one. But you know what? No, I think it is the one that's in Luke because Matthew starts from Abraham and moves forward. Yeah, that's what I'm seeing here. So, Luke, so is it in Luke one at the very beginning? Or is no, that, no, no, no. I think it'll be in like Luke 3 or 4. Okay, that's right, because it doesn't start right with the birth of Jesus. It's Luke 3, starting in verse 23. That's it. Yeah, yeah. there it is, all the way at the end. 38, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So here's Adam being being titled as the son of God. So to, to merely say Jesus is the Son of God and go, oh, that means that he is God himself, the same essence. is like, well, hold on a second. So was Adam. 
Now, Jesus called the second Adam. So again, what does all this mean? Like there's, there's something else there. Like you can't just do the little this equals that like you're taught to do. I mean, again, it could be correct, but the question is, it's almost like the Rene Descartes uh, idea where he's, again, to use the pun, but he does this, guys, in Rene Descartes' book, the the metaphysics or whatever it is, the, I remember listening to it on audio years back, and I was like, man, I resonate a lot with this guy from the 1500s, <laughs> this French philosopher right. guy. But uh, but literally, he talks about like if you have a, a, an apple cart, he goes, I'm not saying all the apples are bad. I'm just taking all of them out to make sure that all of them are good. I'm inspecting all of these before I put them back in. So he's, you know, it's a, it's a skeptic's uh, you know, strategy of, of going through and skeptically looking at every individual thing before he puts it back into the cart. So, you know, he already kind of put a, like the pun is there. It's available, Rene Descartes. <laughs> so <laughs> anyway, so there's that. And then you mentioned, oh, what was the other thing? The Son of God was one, and then there was something else that you just said that triggered another thought. What was the th- last thing that you had said? Oh, about how we are, we are because we are we are beings that come from and emanate from, um, you know, God as part of the creation because all of creation emanates from God, right? Um, then we are intrinsically, uh, intimately connected. We're not just distinct beings with no connection to one another, right? Yes. Okay. That was what, that's what I was thinking of. So if, it, especially with the, the Christian idea of the body of Christ and we are members one of another. So that makes sense. I mean, we, I've heard, I've heard sermons and pastors and, and devotions and things given about like, look, if you stub your toe, your whole body kind of reacts to that. So, you know, something that's down here, my pinky toe that's hurting the entire day, um, affects my entire mood and like the whole body hurts. And so it's like, I started thinking of that going, okay. You know, and, and again, there were so many other things that came to my mind when I started really thinking about this, like the statement of if you improve something out there in the universe, like you improve one thing, it's not that you've just improved one thing. You've literally improved the whole thing. So this goes into your know, pop culture songs from Michael Jackson saying, I'm starting with the man in the mirror. It's like, well, if you improve yourself, and we're talking about from a from like Jordan God's Peterson there. <laughs> yeah, again, yeah, the Jordan Peterson thing, but the, the I mean the 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 crazy part is it's actually true. It's not just saying it's like, "Oh, you know, yeah, that's a good thing." Yeah, you need It's like, "No, think about it. Like it's going to have a ripple effect." Like all of those metaphors started to become more than metaphors. It was like, "No, these are actually real. Like I see this and then I'm seeing the effects of it when I do that for better or for worse." And by that I mean like sometimes it pushes people away that you didn't expect we're going to be pushed away because they're like, hey, Josh is, I don't know what he's on, man, but I don't like it and I want to get away from it. It's like, fair enough. I'm just trying to improve things and I'm changing my perspectives on things. But, okay, here's here's one other thing. I'll mention this in connection with this. I've thought about this. I'm like, okay. So if you have kind of running with this metaphor and trying to push it to its limit, I feel like I'm, you know, the Jordan Peterson thing would be, I'm right on the edge between order and chaos so I I have the sense of what I know, which is the order side, and I'm literally on the ledge going, okay, let me kind of let me let, let me see if I can do the the Peter Pan thing or the cartoon thing and take a few steps out and hope that there's ground there and there might not be ground, but if it's like the uh, what is it the Roadrunner cartoons, then maybe I, I won't fall just yet until I realize that gravity exists. You know? So I'm stepping out right. there and I'm going, okay, hold on a second, I think there might be something here. Let me let me figure this out. So here's what I'm trying to figure out. If you take the idea of God being, you know, in all and through all and all of that, 
And then you take the creation as being something that emanates from him, including all of its various parts, and you think of it the way that you were talking about, like your body and all the cells, and it's an ecosystem. If the controlling thing you know, is, the, the let's say, the brain, for just simple symbolism, the brain is the thing, the head, that controls everything, and that's God, you know, whatever that means, and the rest of it is emanating from him, and that's us to some degree. Well, what about like cancer cells? Like I've thought about that as a symbol, like cancer cells to the degree that I understand cancer, which again, I'm not a professional by any means on this kind of stuff, but cancer cells are cells that have stopped taking orders from the brain, essentially. They're going rogue. They're doing their own thing and then they're signaling each other and it could be cancer cells across your body on different parts of it. And so, you know, when, like I know when they've done chemotherapy or when they've done the radiation type stuff, they have to try and get all of it because literally one cancer cell that makes it you know, survives can then signal other ones or start reproducing you know at a, at a rate that they're not supposed to and you can literally have cancer cells uh, you know, I've heard of, of stuff like this where there was treatments done or whatever where the cancerous cells literally go oh oh wait a minute we got we were taking orders from ourselves we need to take oh okay the brain yeah the brain's telling okay now and then they become not cancerous they literally reverse. And so it's like, well, man, if that's not a good metaphor for like repentance or transformation or, you know, undoing the curse, let's say. So it's like if you have God as creating a universe that's intrinsically, intimately connected to himself, it's like the the opposite of a deistic worldview. So if you have that, what does it mean to have like the Satan or his, his you know, cohorts a running rogue. It's like, well, maybe those would be like the cancer cells in the body, which is God as a whole in his creation. And the creation is groaning, but God's like, you know what? I'm not going to just destroy all of this and start over. Cause this is kind of my own thing that's emanating from me. And I could, and I could restart, but I want to just, I want to cure, I want to cure this. I can still utilize this. And I don't know, like this is again, getting to the limits of even the analogy I'm trying to make. But I've thought about stuff like this, like what would it mean to have you know rebellious people suddenly turn back and go, you know what, I want to follow God. You know, I want to turn my life over. Well, that'd be like a cancer cell that no longer becomes cancerous or starts to become non-cancerous. Like it's a process. So anyway, I'll stop there. But that that's that's what you're you're making me think of all these ideas that I've had in the past that I've kept to myself. <laughs> it's a beautiful analogy, actually, because so if you think about that, right? The, these cancerous cells they 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 are no longer taking orders from the brain, right? Which is the source of all knowledge and and the source of control over all bodily functions, right? Mm-hmm. They are they're now refusing to take orders from that. Now, in a very practical sense. This is what it would mean to uh, to reject God's commandments, because you're no longer taking orders from the brain. Yes, right. And so you are. It, it, it's it's a beautiful analogy, and you're absolutely correct. The idea of repentance, right? In Hebrew, this is the word teshuva. It doesn't mean to change your mind. It literally means to turn back, right? Well, it, it turned back to what? Where did you come from? Where did you stray from that you are now turning back to? Yeah, that would that would be that would be the ways of God, right? This is this would this is what the Torah is. So you're you're now becoming conformed or reconformed uh, to the mind of God, right? You're now taking orders from the brain again, and this is this is 
again, I, and I think to kind of segue into into the the idea of sexuality here, because this is ultimately that that's that's what you're doing when you're obeying the commandments. You're you are experiencing a, a unity, a oneness, a, a connection with God. Right, because I mean, how do you how do you connect with with another person? Right, what what does it mean to connect with them? Now, we could take this in a physical way, and that your bodies literally connect. Sure, that's that that's fine. But what what you're really talking about, right, when you're talking about that kind of an intimate connection, is an actual connection of the essences of what you are, of the 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 internal being of who you are, yes. and connecting between the two. Now. We live in a physical world. God created us a physical world. We're confined by the restraints of a physical world. And I think real quick to wrap up this – to wrap up the idea of God as a fractal and the, the entirety of creation emanating from him, um, Judaism understands it this way, right? Because people tend to think of creation as being existent within reality. Mm-hmm. It, but then reality itself is something separate from creation if, if creation exists within it. Mm-hmm. Judaism views it this way. God is reality. Ooh. That, that the, 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 this, this broad concept of reality that everything exists within, that is what God is, right? The, the, I could build a chair and then I can walk away from the chair because I'm not connected to the chair, Right. Judaism's idea and what they explain about if God actually turned away and walked away from his creation is that it would cease to exist. Not not even as though it had existed and now it didn't, but as though it had never existed in the first place. Mm. This is this is the intricate connection that God has with the creation, is that he is constantly the the phrase is creating and recreating, right? It's like he is constantly breathing life into what has life, and this is a constant thing that is constantly happening because if it ever weren't happening for one moment, then it would cease to exist. And see, that is – that is oh, my goodness. So I've mentioned before, uh, maybe even on some of the podcasts I've had, that the the, the Western world I think is, is at least to my to my understanding of it, it seems like we are – collectively um, reacting to, and I mean this in a positive way, like I see the younger generations and stuff, the reason why they're getting into all this kind of spirituality and new age stuff and why that's such a, like all of the, the pop culture stuff, Stranger Things, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, you know, Avatar Last Airbender, things like that. The reason why, all, well, Harry Potter is another big one. The reason why all those kinds of things seem to be attractive or are attractive is because We've been raised in a culture that is very much like pushing atheistic. So I, I've yeah, I have said it like this. Like in India, there's a spirit behind everything. That's Hinduism. That's the you know dominant religion over there, to my knowledge. But in the West, we literally take the spirit out of everything. Like it's like there ain't a spirit in the chair. There's not a spirit in the tree. Look, like there's just come on, man. I don't even know if there's a god, man. I don't even think there's any kind of spiritual realm which is the Richard Dawkins approach, you know. So it's like if we take the spirit out of everything and then you're over in India and they put the spirit in everything, and part of the reason why I even think of it like this is because I have a you know, a pastor friend from India. He and his wife are, were born and raised in India and they live in the States. 
And so his whole worldview when he's in the States is he's like, you know, oh, I'm sensing like this spirit or there's this thing at work. And it's like, I, in the beginning, I'm like, I don't even know what you're talking about when you're naming like the spirit of this, the spirit of that. Like he's using shorthand type stuff and I don't know what the references are, but he says it in a way where I'm like, dude, here, you're on to something, man. And so I, I just remember kind of being like, well, I don't know what you're talking about, but I see your lifestyle. I see, you know, you know what you're talking about to in terms of like scripture and like, you know, there was stuff where I'm like, I, I can't help but deny that you're you're living a good lifestyle at the very least. You know, like I can't look at you and go like, ooh, you know, you're sacrificing babies on, you know, like, there's nothing like right. that going on. So I'm going, what's going on here? And then I started kind of thinking like, oh, you know, we we it's it's almost there's like a positive to it i feel like part of the impact of having the the american experiments let's say is there was like a mass exorcism of spirits out of things and the symbolism associated so we don't see you know this certain thing and its symbolic connection so let me let me throw this out there i a couple of years back thought about uh the statement well, the, the the statement in John, John three, when you know, sixteen, seventeen, around that you know, point where Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and he says, um, "The you know, just as the or I'm going to misquote this. It's it's I, I know the John three sixteen one, but where he says, um, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. It's like I've quote, okay, yeah, that's a reference back at you know, prophet. I'm like, hold on a second, let's back up. What does that mean? Literally, that means that that God chose to represent himself or to at least represent Jesus. So this goes back to the, you know, what do we do with all that? But regardless, God is using a bronze serpent to represent a savior figure symbolically that then is, you know, there's a throwback uh, to that with Jesus on the cross. It's like, well, wait a minute. I thought the serpent was a symbol for Satan, the adversary. I thought that was evil. It's like, okay, well, and I've had, I've mentioned this. And I've had people like, basically, almost dismiss it. It's almost like they don't, and not not intentionally. It's like they just don't grasp what I'm trying to point at. They they start saying things that don't even they're not tracking with what I'm saying. And I'm like, okay, hold on a second. Let me let me mention this also as well. What about with Moses and Aaron? They have a staff that they put forward, which is a symbol of the authority that they're bringing into Egypt. And what does the staff turn into? It turns into a serpent. And what do the staffs of the Egyptians turn into? Serpents. Okay, so here it's like God going, all right, I'm the true serpent. You guys are the counterfeit serpents. And then there's a little like, you know, it's like the my dad can beat up your dad, you know, thing. It's, well, my God can beat up your God or gods in this case. Oh, and so, man. Dude, and it devours it. Like, it eats all of them up. So it's like, okay, there's the prophecy. This God, the you know Hashem, the one that cannot be named, or the name, just said, I swallowed all of you up, so now I have even the authority of your gods. And then the highest god in Egypt uh, was Ra, the sun god, as far as I know from Egyptian you know, stuff. And what's one of the last plagues? A darkness that can be felt that covers the, the light, the sun god, the highest god in Egypt, and it's in midday. So that's him going, I'm even over you, Ra. And then last but not least is, oh, by the way, Pharaoh, you were viewed as a god, and your son is viewed as a god. I'm killing your son because I'm over you guys as well. And so <laughs> so it's like the whole thing is is spiritual warfare. The god of the Nile, okay, blood. I can make it blood. The God of the frogs. Okay, 
the frogs are now running rampant and stinking all over Egypt. Like the whole thing is spiritual warfare, but it begins with God representing himself as a serpent. It's like, why did he do that? I think that was intentional. I think he's mocking the, the adversary's attempts in the garden. So he's like, all right, you want to do that? I'll, I'm going to change the... You've tried to represent yourself. I created serpents. I'm God. I created serpents. You tried to take that symbol for yourself and be, oh, I'm the serpent. All right, well, I'm the greater serpent. I'm the true serpent. Like Jesus is the lion of Judah. Uh, and there's the, the adversary who prowls around like a roaring lion. So there's, there's, you, see this, you see both of those. But I've tried to talk with people, you know, including my, uh, my, my Indian friends, and more so uh, my, my pastor friend's wife. She can't help but see, like, <sighs> I, this, I don't mean to, to, to degrade them or anything, but a lot of times she can't help but see, like, a, a symbol of, of death in something that's, like, you know, a skull. It's like, oh, why is there a skull there? I'm like, well, there's trying to show, you know, this is the skull of an animal that was, dig, you know, dug up. It's a, it's a, um, like in a museum or something like that, you know, in the, in, you know, th- this is something they dug up and here's the remains and this, oh, what skull is death. I don't know why, they, I don't know why they have that in here. It's like, <laughs> that's not what it means. We don't see it that way. Like I get, you see it that way and maybe Mexicans with their day of the dead might, but even, so anyway, the point is, it's like, okay, if God's the ultimate one who can create, can in, imbue things with symbolism, then it would make sense that, when the creation comes to a complete, uh, you know, the kingdom of heaven is manifested fully on earth, that everything that God has created would be a symbolic, would be symbolically pointing toward him and nothing else. And so maybe undoing the curse and undoing the, the symbolism is to, to, to basically regain the territory and say, nope, dragons no longer mean you know, godlessness or Satan. Serpents no longer mean this. Nope, we're going to take this. I'm taking the authority away from from anything other than God and saying God gets to define reality and what the symbols mean. You know, the darkness and the sea no longer mean evil things. Or Anyway, I could go on and on, but for the time being, God can still have utility by using symbols and go, okay, light and darkness. Okay, I'm the light and they're the darkness. But God also created the absence of light, um, and there's utility for that (laughs) the 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 torah the torah says that moses had to venture into the thick darkness to commune with god it's it's within the thick darkness that that moses received the torah from Ooh, are are you still there you said received the torah from god from within the thick darkness right it's the the we in the western world have this inherent negative view attached to darkness. We just always assume that it's evil, but that's not necessarily the case. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sometimes it just it's it just represents the unknown. Sometimes it's it's that which is mysterious to us, but it's not inherently bad. Um, and there's a you know there's a number of <laughs> there's a number of ways um, that it it's biblically. It is equated with God, so I, I just gave you one right where where Moses had to travel to in into the thick darkness to commune with God, but also right there in the book of Genesis, right? Uh, you have in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless was, was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the waters, and mm. the spirit of God hovered over the surface of the deep. So we have this this intricate comparison between the spirit of God and the darkness. 
I, th- I've never made that connection, but that makes sense. Oh my goodness. Keep going. <laughs> right. And that, that like, that's that idea of, of, you know, uh, chaos within the order. Right. And, and that is, that is it, important to understand and you you referenced this earlier right that 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 sometimes when you learn first of all you have to learn the rules and when you learn the rules well enough you can break the rules in a way that fits within the sequence right and uh, so as a musician like this is this is inherently Ooh, true this is okay yeah yeah keep going <laughs> <laughs> so dissidence is incorrect musically speaking mm-hmm. <laughs> however Within a musical piece, there are points where dissidence is what builds up um, the 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 tension in the song before a climactic release. Yes. Right? So the the chaos is injected into the sequence of order in such a way that it serves a purpose. Yes, and then it literally. The longer it goes on, the more it builds. The more emphatic the rev- the resolution is. It's it's so this goes into like the Joseph story in the Old Testament of what God what you meant for evil, God meant for good. It's like the again like the ultimate chess master who goes, oh yeah, I see what you're doing. Ooh, I'm glad you moved your piece and your pawn there. Ooh, you you I see what you're trying to do, but that actually is the exact move that I need so that I can do this to defeat. Oh, thank you for moving another piece. Like the fact that you moved a piece is actually helping me out. It's it's like that. Right. You're yeah. You'll never you'll never out chess God. <laughs> you know th- this is this is in such a way that actually and and the depth of it is, is in such a way. So you mentioned the serpents earlier, right? And and how the the serpent that uh, Moses had laid down had devoured the other serpents, right? But. So the symbolism is actually even deeper than just that because it says that the serpent of Moses devoured those other serpents, but it specifically mentions that it remained unchanged. Now, (laughs) that is the depth to which those other gods have absolutely no substance. There is absolutely nothing to them. The fact that they could be devoured by the one true God and it's, it's unchanged. Right? It's, it, it, it doesn't have a huge tummy from just having devoured other snakes, right? It's, it's almost as if it devoured nothing, yet it <laughs> devoured all of them. Dude, that's good. That is good. That's making me think of like when Paul got bitten by a venomous snake and it did nothing to him. He just kind of shook it off. It's like nothing right. happened to him. So it's not like he got the poison. And like, oh, okay, I should have died, but I didn't die. But it's you know, I've got a swollen. It literally had no effect. So it's it's like eating food that maybe has poison in it, and you're like, okay, my digestive tract is strong enough to defeat it. So I'll just I'll have a little time. It's like no, no, no. It didn't phase him at all. Like, that's what you're basically saying. It was like, I think the way you said it is probably the best. I'm just trying to come up, like, I'm processing it right now out loud. So, guys, this is the way my mind thinks. He literally ate nothing. Okay, let me throw this out. If if Jesus Christ is the light of the world, you know, if that metaphor is used, or if God is the light of the world, that might be even better, Um what you know, in a literal sense, in a physical sense, uh, which maybe those uh, maybe 
literal and physical are different. So we could even distinguish that. But in a physical sense, a scientific sense, light is a particle wave. Like it's an actual thing. Darkness by definition is nothing. It, it There is no substance to it. It's literally the just, you know, I've... I've uh, we've all heard the thing that's attributed to Albert Einstein, and you know, who knows whether it was or, or whether it's true or not. But regardless, the principle is, is still true. There's no such thing as cold, necessarily. There's just such thing as heat. And so the absence of heat, we say, ooh, that's cold. And by that, that's shorthand for that's, it's, you know, it doesn't have much heat or has no heat, if that's possible. But in some sense, like everything has a level of heat, as long as we can measure it. And so if it has a lot, we say, ooh, it's hot. Ooh, it's burning hot. Ooh, it's scalding hot. Ooh, it's consuming fire hot. You know, whatever the case may be. So there's only heat, and then we can talk about the state of having much heat or having no heat. Um, ooh, there's light, and we can talk about the state of having much light or having no light, you know, the absence of light, which would be darkness. And so then I remember thinking, I was like, well, wait a minute. That's the physical reality, but there's forces of darkness. We use that terminology. What does that mean then? And I was like, well, hold on a second, because it sounds like the forces of darkness are an actual thing, and they're fighting, and they're doing, you know, what what are they doing? They're spreading darkness or whatever. And so then I was thinking, like, well, wait a minute. That If darkness is nothing, then that means that the things that are spreading darkness or the forces of darkness cannot be entirely made up of darkness because darkness is nothing, that must mean, and that's where I started realizing, like, oh, my goodness, truth and falsehood. Well, what is the best lie you could tell? In some sense, the best lie might be the thing that's closest to the truth but slightly deviating. So it's like 99.9% true with 1% or 0.1% falsehood, and that's the closest thing that you could get to the truth, let's say, uh, with it still being false. And so the whole statement is false. And so like I, I remember wrestling with all this kind of stuff and going, so that means that the forces of darkness are literally composed of maybe light. They're composed of truth and slightly deviating. And it's like, well, that would make sense that you think of like uh, you know Satan or whatever, like the highest level uh, adversaries would be the ones that are the craftiest because they have the highest counterfeits that you put out there. So like the whole yin and yang concept, like some of what you said triggered that idea and people might accuse yeah. the stuff you're saying, go, well, that's yin and yang. It's like, no, the yin and yang is a very close counterfeit. I think it slightly deviates. Like I think some of these really, really powerful religious symbols and things that, that are very, very potent and almost like they're very true-ish, but they're slightly off. And so then people start accusing the truth of being pagan. And it's like, no, we're, we're aiming at the truth here and we're striving to speak about it as honestly as possible. And the fact that these are very closely related to counterfeits, like we still, a dollar bill still is a true dollar bill. And the best counterfeits are the ones that look almost identical, but it takes someone with discernment to point out that they're not. It's, it's so anyway, I'll pause there. <laughs> yeah. Even I was going to say, even, even it, it, it doesn't necessarily even need to be mostly true. Think about this. It could even be completely true, but out of context. Ooh, that's even better. That's typically the most damaging right there is when it's actually very like, like 100% true, but out of its context. And it, it, it has the, the ability to do so much damage and we see that with a lot of biblical exegesis, like all the time. Yes. But yeah, a lot of a lot of these things that that we see in in pagan culture 
actually have a biblical basis. Um, so uh, one of them, one of them that jumps out at me right is is um, I'm sure we've all heard a pastor use this uh, example in a sermon before, which is kind of ironic, right? It's not it's not wrong for a pastor to use this, but like for what I'm about to explain, suddenly it's like heretical. Um, <sighs> is the example of you know the uh, the Indian the Native American child who's speaking with his grandfather and his grandfather's telling him the story about the two wolves that live inside of him. Mm-hmm. There's, there's the one good wolf and the one bad wolf, and they're at a constant war with one another. And uh, the you know, the young boy asks his grandfather, well, which one will win? And uh, he says, the, the, one, the one that I feed the most. I, that... Is a pagan concept, right? This the 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 idea of uh, two combating natures, if you will. Uh, but this is actually derived directly from Genesis two seven and the creation of man, right? And this is again, this is where we find another one of these these uh, these incorrect Hebrew words, right? It's, it's actually a, a misspelled word. The Genesis two seven begins with the word vayatzar. Right, uh, which Yetzar is is the word for formed. It has an extra yud though, and this is the only time in all of Scripture that it appears this way. Okay, which is technically it's a misspelling. It's like spelling it with two y's. Right, it, it's unnecessary and it's it's not a correct way of spelling it. Um, but so but it's there, and so Rashi, um, an ancient Jewish scholar. Uh, determined that the two yuds, the extra yud is there to indicate that there were two things that were created, right? There was something for this world and something for the world to come. And if we mm. read later in the verse, right, it says, Vayetzer Hashem Elohim et Adam. So God formed the man. Um, Farmin Adama, right, from the dust of the ground. Mm-hmm. And it goes on to say, that God breathed into his nostrils. The word here is nishmat chaim, the breath of life. The word nishmat is is from the word neshama. In, in Hebrew, neshama can mean breath, and it does mean breath, but it also means soul. Right? Okay. But it's very specifically the divine soul. I, okay, I remember... I remember we touched on this um, in our phone call from from yes. a couple months back. This is you're reminding me of that. So keep go ahead and, and uh, mention as much as you want on that for just anybody listening because this will also refresh my memory of it too. So the 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 neshama is the divine soul, right? It's that it's that small spark of God's divinity that's capable of residing within a human being, right? It's that which tends us towards the good. It's that which which uh, tends us towards the light, if you will, right? Um, then it also says that the man became a nefesh chaya, a living being. Now that word nefesh there mm-hmm. also means soul. Right? When we read, when we read in, in later on in Genesis that uh, you know Abraham left and and such and such number of souls went with him. Right, that's that's the word nefesh. It refers to the animal soul, and we know this because much later in Genesis two, 
when it speaks about the animals, it also refers to them as nefesh chaya, right? That's what I was about to mention. I was like, isn't this the same word that's used for like soulish creatures? Uh, You know, the, the, yes. Keep going, keep going. And so within this verse, we already have evidence of two souls residing in man have the divine soul and then you have the animal soul now the animal soul is that which tends towards the self now in in simpler animals um this we would call instinct right when they're hungry they eat Uh, when they're thirsty they drink when they need to procreate they procreate right these are things that they need to do for the survival of the species Mm. for us as human beings this is selfishness Right now, obviously, we do need to eat, right? But we tend towards gluttony because we are selfish beings, right? We do need to procreate. We do need to have marital connection with one another. But then we tend towards excess, and then we tend towards even out, you know, trying to put this outside of the context of the marriage, right? That's what human desire is. That stems from the the nefesh, right? In Hebrew, we call that the yetzer hara, the evil inclination, and it comes from the nefesh. So you have the nefesh, the animal soul, and you have the neshama, the divine soul, and these two are constantly at odds with one another, constantly battling one another for dominion over the body. Mm. So this would be Paul in the New Testament in Romans, is it 7 or 8? I think 7. He, 7, at the end of 7, where he's saying... You know, the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, I do. You know, oh, who can rescue me from this this body of death? And he's talking about the flesh waging war with, the, with well, the, whatever the terms are. But, but basically, there's that internal struggle that everybody can be like, oh, yeah, man, I totally, like, that's in, again, that's, there's so many pop culture references all over the place. Like, I still reference Legend of Zelda with Dark Link, for those who are Zelda fans, where you have, like, the shadow version of of Link, and he has to fight himself. Like, we see that where you have to face yourself. Um, you see that in Star Wars in Episode Five with Luke Skywalker where he has to fight himself, and he goes in, you know, Dagobah is being trained by Yoda. The, and he, it's one of the greater um, – it, it's one of the greater uh, tests. It's the final test of the Jedi, actually. To Before you can become a Jedi Knight, you have to do what they call facing the mirror. Which again, I'm starting with the man in the mirror. <laughs> like, <Right>. so <laughs> this concept is everywhere, and you know it can be varying levels of of accuracy. And it's almost like I don't want to fault people from different religious. Like I'm talking people that I would say like, okay, if you died today, whatever this means, you're not going to make it into heaven. You're going to go to hell or whatever. And again, that gets into a whole can of worms because what do we mean by that? But the point is. There are people who are in you know, Buddhism or in Hinduism or in whatever, you know, whatever the ism is, whatever, you know, Muslims, this, that, or the other. It's like you don't have to go in barreling, you know, barreling in and going, hey, every single thing you believe about everything is completely wrong, you dumb, you know, whatever. Like, no, there, there's not everybody. Okay. Let's say you have somebody, and, and C.S. Lewis got flack from this, but he, he represents this to the best of his ability with what he was trying to do, and I think it's admirable. In his book, The Last Battle, which is the last of his Chronicles of Narnia, you know, the, the, final, uh, the seventh book, the final one, hence the name Final Battle, there's a character in it who's basically like the, the, the race of people, the, the, 
they're not even a race so much as they are just a culture, are very closely like paralleling the Arabs, you know, the Arabic Muslim type type world. I forget what the the name Lormans. of the Mormons. Yes, that's it. That's it. And he is a soldier, and the way that it's kind of described is it's like within his context, he wasn't worshiping a true God. They had a different God. But because he was only focused on the elements that were overlapping, so it's like, again, the idea of different religions having a, a level of accuracy and kind of counterfeits. It's like, well, what happens if you have a counterfeit, you know, two counterfeit dollar bills, but you only focus on the parts that are actually overlapping? Like the, the part that's counterfeited that makes the whole thing a counterfeit, you don't look at that. Maybe you don't have knowledge of that. You're only focused on the true parts of it. And so let's say, you know, I feel like C.S. Lewis was trying to say, what if your soul or what if your being is oriented to kind of the Jordan Peterson pursuit? Pick the highest good, the highest light, the highest truth that you can find and shoot for that. Now, I'm not trying to make an argument that that is sufficient for salvation. You know, I'm not saying that, but what I'm saying is that's a heck of a lot better than going the opposite direction. Like, why not build from there? And I'm losing track of where I started with this, but you were saying something that triggered triggered what I, my little rant. What was the, what was the in, initial point? <laughs> Oh man, I don't, I don't even remember at this point. <laughs> but, but no, I, I, man, I'm, I'm with you on, on the analogy. I think I understand kind of where you were going. Is, is just that there's, look, there's a lot that the Christian world doesn't even understand about their own scriptures, and unfortunately, the world that we have grown up in, as, uh, in, in a sense, it has rejected spirituality in so big. A- into the church and you know uh, so can you say uh, a that again of mine, it, it cut out for just a second you said so much of christianity has something in the church oh yeah that that uh that the world is rejected in spiritualism it's rejected spiritualism in such a way that it's crept into the church and this is so a, a friend of mine who also has a podcast uh, will hess his podcast is the church split um he describes it as uh, practical atheism, right? Mm. Where Christians they they believe that there's a God, but they really don't believe the implications of believing in a a spiritual reality, right? Yes. Um, because if you accept that, then suddenly you have to accept things like magic, right? yes, and you have to accept <laughs> that magic might be a neutral thing, that it might not be black and white, that it might not be something that like all magic is sinful. Because that yes. would right? Like there are, there's a, a ton of other things you have to accept if you accept the reality of a spiritual world that is affected <laughs> by the physical world and vice versa. Um, and to, like, to like your King point, Saul like, having a spirit that's irritating him, and literally David plays music on a harp, and that drives the evil spirit away. Like if that's not fairy tale level stuff, but it's true. Oh, <laughs> This is this is this is a big monkey wrench in that right because it is it one of my favorite subjects of study is like angelology and demonology. Oh yeah. And yes. so what you just mentioned plays into that because the the way it is mentioned verbatim in Hebrew right is that God so it says that God takes His Holy Spirit from King Saul and then sends in its place and I quote an evil spirit from the Lord. Hmm. Now square that. <laughs> <laughs> so 
there's wait. Uh, God there, doesn't there, do that. What you're saying is like uh, you're uh, like no. That's what yeah, the, the Bible whole says. Problem of evil and everything, and and yeah. But God doesn't. God's evil. not the author of evil. Like okay, p- please well, shut I, up. I, <laughs> Isaiah says he is. So well, but, uh, <laughs> but sorry, means, I, I can't help calamity. <laughs> Yeah, it's just calamity. It's like okay, maybe okay, maybe it is, but but what if it's not? Well, I just I'm gonna stick with what my pastor says, and that's it. <laughs> so it's 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 interesting. We we mentioned earlier, right? That this idea of the nefesh and the neshama these these two these two spiritual forces that exist within man that are fighting for dominion over the body, and the the so the way that the Tanya phrases it is that they're fighting over dominion over the body, which is called a small city. Right uh, in 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 certain rabbinic hermeneutic, the body is compared to being a small city, and so the city is being besieged from both sides, right, for dominion over it. Okay. Um, and so I want you to understand, though, right, that because if we understand the divine soul to be that which tends us towards service of God, and if we equate service of God with uh, the Torah, and also if we equate God's wisdom with the Torah, because that is also what's understood in Judaism, I'm going to read the first few parts of Proverbs chapter 8, right? Okay. Uh, starting in verse 1, and now this is the KJV because this is what came up. Uh, when I when I googled it, but it says, "Doth not wisdom cry, and understanding put forth her voice? She standeth at the top of high places, by the way in the places of the paths. She crieth at the gates, at the entry of the city, at the coming in, uh, at the doors." So. This idea of the body being a small city, this is actually derived directly from Proverbs 8. Mm-hmm, I can see and that. It will, what we will see later, right, in Proverbs 8 is the idea of the Torah being one with God's wisdom is also taken from Proverbs 8. So Proverbs 8.22, right? And this goes back to this whole idea of in the beginning, right? This is where wisdom, again, speaking in the first person, speaking in the feminine, which is also noteworthy, um, says that Hashem possessed me in the beginning of his way for his works of old. I was set up from everlasting, from the beginning, or ever the earth was. So in other words, before the creation, wisdom was there with God, mm-hmm. which goes right back to what we were just discussing about the Torah. So that's the, this this idea here is that the, the commandments of God are the means by which the divine soul besieges the animal soul, right? Because that's that's really that's what that's what the commandments of God are is self denial, right? The the self says, I want you know an extra portion of food. I want to be a glutton. Um, the divine soul says, well, okay, like you probably only eat what you need. Mm-hmm. Don't, 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 don't be wasteful. Provide for others. Make sure that others have eaten before you take another, right? The same thing with even sexuality, right? The, the, the self says, well, I, I, I would like to be with as many women as possible, right? <laughs> yes. Um, dude, dude, that stuff I mentioned, okay, I'm shameless plug for a podcast episode that was just me. I didn't have any people on, but I called it forbidden sexuality. It's part one. I have yet to put out part two, 
But I literally give a, and so I'm just, for those who want to listen to the full thing, it, I highly encourage it because it, if you want to hear my story, um, that's basically the addiction that I had in my life was I wanted an, a harem that rivaled Solomon's and he had 700 wives, 300 concubines, so a thousand women. I wanted to have way more than that. It, uh, without, well, okay, I'll give the conclusion of, of that. I mentioned this in, in greater detail, but basically my thought process when I did the thought experiment was I want every single female that's ever existed throughout all of history you know, uh, past, present, future, everything together from Eve to whoever the last female you know, being ever comes out. I want all of them in their prime beauty. And then I was like, okay, I want a double portion of that or a trip. In other words, different versions of them in different ages, whatever. It was like, okay, I've got all of them. Now what? And it was almost like God went, do you want, do you, do you know, are you satisfied? And I was like, no, I want one more. And it was like, well, but by definition, there are no more. So what does that mean? And I was like, Okay, that means that I have a rogue desire. That's the term that I used. I was like, it's something off about the desire because I'm literally desiring something that is impossible to satisfy even within the limits or the limitlessness of my own imagination. By definition, it's impossible. And so then it was like, okay, so that's greed or gluttony or something rogue. It's something off with that. Was it the nefesh, the, the soulish desire, something that's off? It's bent. It's crooked. It's not straight. It's not, you know, it's not the narrow path. It's something else. So anyway, that's a plug for that podcast, but keep going. <laughs> no, it was, and, and that was definitely a good episode. I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, and I'm looking forward to part two. Oh, well, thank you. I didn't know if you had listened to all of it or any of it. I know you said you were going to. So thank you, man. I appreciate it. I know. Ab- absolutely. Um, and I, I guess really that, you know, this would be kind of a, a cool place to segue into where, where the service of God fits into the, the crossover of sexuality to our relationship with God, right? Yes. Because so we've put a lot of emphasis on what the commandments are, what God is, understanding God, understanding the commandments, understanding how they fit into our relationship with God, right? Because again, that's what that's what connection is. When you are trying to connect with your spouse, you're you're not just trying to connect with them physically. You're actually trying to connect on a on a spiritual level, right? Something that transcends the physical world. You're trying to connect the level of pure essence, right? Yes, that can only be done through physical means, right? Uh, this is one of the this is one of the ways that I've I've tried to explain to a lot of people when it comes to like obedience to the commandments of the Torah is this. Can you and I'm gonna ask the question, there's no right or wrong answer, um, but can you think of any possible way? So you love your wife, and I know you love your wife, right? Can you think of any possible plausible way that you can convey that love to her so that she can comprehend it that does not utilize physical action Hmm. and i think the simple answer is no not really it's, it is impossible even if you speak the words they're speaking in and of itself is an action yes right? it, it, there, there, it is impossible to take what is internal in you in your mind and in your heart and make it external right make it accessible to another mind and heart that doesn't take on a physical action that's the world that we live in 
And it's, so it's literally the fabric of reality. It's like you can't escape that. And it's not it's not like a oh no, I'm in a prison. Like <laughs> uh, G.K. Chesterton, I think it's in his book Orthodoxy. I think it's in that book. It's in one of his where he says you know, some I'm paraphrasing, but he makes a quote like some philosophers or some religious perspectives believe that by putting man in a body, it put him in a prison. You know, it, it put it bounds him. And he says, I put it the opposite. He goes, I think by putting man in a in a body, it liberated him. It gave him the ability to act and do things which he otherwise would not be able to do as a disembodied spirit. Yes. Yes, we can. We can. We have means of expression um, that we otherwise wouldn't have without the physical aspect. And when when we think about that kind of connection between a husband and wife, right, the way that they connect uh, and and it taking on a physical form, it really isn't so different for God, right? The, that that level of connection we find when we are in obedience with Him. Um, now. There's a very unique level of connection and intimacy that is understood, uh, particularly by the Jewish people, and um, I, I say it's understood particularly by them because I I, I I do believe um, there is uh, there is an understanding that is captured by having been raised and 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 being descended from from that line. And that is this. So there are a few things that are forbidden for a Gentile to do um, by Torah law, right? Uh, there, there are certain commands that technically Gentiles are not supposed to do according to Jewish law, right, okay. as their interpretation of the law. Uh, one of them is observing the Sabbath because that was given to Israel specifically um, as part of the covenant, which is a marriage, right? Israel and God, the covenant they have is is one of a marriage. And the Sabbath was given to them as a sign of that covenant. And so, uh, but there there are loopholes in this that even Jews will acknowledge where it's like, okay, so as long as you flip on a light switch, you technically have like broken Shabbat, quote unquote, because, you know, you've violated one of the rabbinic mandates about uh, completing a circuit on the Sabbath. Um, you know, <laughs> there's... There, yeah, there's there's stuff like that where it's like, all right, technically, biblically, that doesn't technically violate the Sabbath, but you know, it it, it violates it enough for them to be okay with you keeping the Sabbath with them um, if you're not a, a, a converted Jew. Uh, another another one is the wrapping of tefillin. Right, this is a, a a particular time of prayer and whatnot, and that one is pretty hard and fast. Uh, but the third is the study of Torah for its own sake. Now, now understand what that means, to study the Torah for its own sake, to study the Torah simply for the joy of being able to study the Torah. You're not trying to learn anything from it. You're not trying to glean anything from it. You're not really even trying to to, uh, gain a higher connection with God from it. You're just enjoying the fact that you get to study it. That's something that really none of us have a concept of. Um, and so the idea is that Gentiles are forbidden from this. Personally, I think that Gentiles aren't necessarily even capable of it because uh, what does that mean? How does somebody simply derive pleasure from reading the Torah for its own sake? What is that? I have no concept of that. Mm. You know, um, The idea is this, 
right? If we understand that the Torah is is the mind of God, right, bound up and uh, dumbed down into a a written form that the human mind is capable of comprehending. Mm-hmm. Right? So you are comprehending and grasping the mind of God when you study it. But as you study it and you become conformed to it, then the mind of God is grasping you at the same time. And so this this level of connection at the level of essence is being achieved in that act. Are, right? Did you uh, you may have cut out? You said that the level of something is being, or, or can you repeat this that level? Of, yeah, the, this level of connection at 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 the the level of essence right being connected at the point of essence is being achieved in the act of studying the torah for its own sake right because your intellect your wisdom your 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 comprehension your knowledge is being enveloped by the knowledge wisdom and nature of god while at the same time as you are digesting it you are also you're also enveloping it, so you, it's kind of this, this, this double enveloping of your mind of of the mind of God, but also the mind of God of your mind. It's that that is that marital union between yes. between you know uh, the people of God and and God. That's that is that that that's where they connect at the essence. Yes. Okay. So let me let me tie this into stuff, and this will be almost a, a teaser for what I want to get into in the part two of my my you know, forbidden sexuality thing, because I wanted to delve into Song of Solomon specifically. And so we won't I won't do it as in depth in this one, uh, but I do I have no qualms with with getting into some of it. So and the, and and I'm going to do some throwbacks to the idea of of who God is and not so much like the Trinity concept. Cause we've already kind of touched on that a bit, but we'll, we'll do a, we'll do a wrap up at the end of, of this, you know, this, this episode, but, or kind of a, you know, a summary statement, but okay. So you have, if, if song of Solomon is, or the, the, the song of songs, Solomon's song of songs, meaning the greatest song ever, you know, it's the wisest of the wise, the king of the king or king of Kings, Lord of Lords, song of songs, you know, that's, that's for those who don't know. That's just a statement of like the greatest of all of them. You know, uh, the, there's many songs, but this is the greatest song of all. Um, okay, so if I okay, I don't even know where to start, man. There's like so many cool ideas that are popping up. I feel like any direction I go is is good. Like it's in, and and when we're at that level of conversation, that's amazing. So I I love this. Um, let me say this. I remember trying to communicate this to, to to tell this to some some family members of mine at one point, and it seemed like the more I would try and talk about this, the more anxious some of them would get. They're like, kind of like, oh, it was like there was a part of them was like, oh, we can't talk about this. Like, there's something in me that doesn't, you know, it's anxiety or whatever, which is sad because I'm like, this is literally the fundamental, like the fundamental building blocks of human beings, like the. It always has struck me as odd, and I think I mentioned this in my first, you know, uh, part one of forbidden sexuality. It's like we literally owe our existence to the fact that you know, mom and dad had sex multiple times over until the sperm hit the egg, and you know, something magical—I'm going to use that term—happened that produced me growing in a womb. Like this is. 
if, if we didn't live in this reality and we're looking outside of it as if it's a fairy tale, we would conclude it's a fairy tale. Like, this is crazy, but it's true, and we live in it, and it's so normal we don't even think about it. So why is there, like, why are we so, you know, anxious about, like, I've noticed that. I'm like, come on, man. Like, I feel like there's there's something, part of the reason why people are anxious about it is because it touches down to, like, the lowest levels of their being, and there's problems down there because of the way our culture defines things and the way, you know, all of the the messiness of it and the shame that's attached and this, that, and the other, and a lot of the religious aspects that are the finger wagging and nagging, like, oh, you broke the rule here. I'll, I, this is dirty. This is that. All of those. Just there's so much there. But to me, I'm looking at it and I'm going, okay. Because, okay, I'll say it this way. I remember wondering for the first time, probably in my teens, early teens, I'm like, dude, sex is weird. Like, I was like, let me think about this. Of all the ways that God could have chosen to produce more offspring through Adam and Eve. Why this? You know, why the whole ritual? Why why not reproducing asexually, you know, where you just split in half? Like he could have done like I was thinking of the level of if you're creating something from scratch <laughs> or not from scratch, you know, maybe it's Lego bricks, you know, something like that. You got the pieces. Why that? You could have done it differently. So then the question was, and this was before I started thinking very symbolically. This was years ago. I was like well, he must have had some reason behind it. So maybe there's more reason than I realized. Maybe there's symbolism basically behind it. Maybe it's supposed to represent something. You know, in other words, maybe. And I'm gonna I'm gonna speak very plainly because I don't really care about you know who might be offended by it. I'm just I'm speaking about it as as plainly as I can. But maybe there's a point to a man having a penis. You know, a, a, a something that is enters into a woman and then the seed comes out of it like there's there's meaning to that that's not just again the atheistic idea of oh it just happened well that's first off stupid but second off why did it happen that way like that's so you know we don't even think about that but in terms of a religious or spiritual worldview where you're like maybe there's symbolism there it's like well i think there definitely is and so i remember mentioning just in general when i was first starting to kind of try to figure all this out for myself is I said, it seems to me that at the very least, the act of sex, the act of putting you know, the man's penis into the woman's vagina, and you know all of the, the the sensuality and the kissing and the you know entanglement of bodies. Let's say, I was like, I feel like that's an attempt, like when it's being done uh, in a way where both both partners are attempting to do the same thing, so they're attempting a level of intimacy. It's almost like they're trying to mirror. Uh, or manifest, you know, you could use different terms, something that's occurring on a soul level or a spiritual level. So it's like here's the physical manifestation of two two souls, two spirits that are embracing. And so that's part of the reason why there's a, a connection at that level and why, like, it's, it's specific. It, in other words, it's no accident that the man enters into the woman. And you see stuff like this in, in Song of Solomon. Um there's a chapter, oh, I could look it up, but there's a point where it says, uh, it, it, to my understanding, it basically refers to the woman's womb as, she says, my mother's house. I think it's in chapter three. And it's like the bride character, the, the female saying something like, I looked for the thing which my soul loves and I couldn't find it. And so I'm going through the city and asking the watchman, where is it at? And then it says, I found it and I grabbed it. You know, I took hold of it and I brought it into my mother's house. And so, Brad, you can you can tell me what you think about this because I have not figured out all the symbolism. 
But to my understanding, uh, back when I was first looking at this in 2019 and kind of praying for insight, I was like, well, wait a minute. What's the first house that I ever lived in, if I wanted to use that metaphor? It's like, well, that's my mom's womb. So if I name the first house, the first thing that I lived in as, okay, the name of it is my mother's house. It's like, okay, so that's a, that's a you know, symbol for the womb. That's the, the poetic name for the womb. Well, then that means that the bride, she, if she's talking about her womb, she could say, it's my mother's house. Even though she wasn't in her own womb, she was in her mother's womb, but that's the name of it. It's the mother's house. And so when she's saying, I'm bringing the man, uh, you know, the thing which my soul loves, it's like, well, what does she mean by that? It's like, well, maybe the soul has something to do with, like, the essence of who you are, um, you know, feminine, masculine, uh, uh, your your characteristics, like your personality, you know, whatever that is. It's it's, And then it's symbolized, or, or one of the meanings of it, one of the symbols of it is, well, what are the physical aspects of your body that are distinctly or distinctively masculine or feminine? Um, well, obviously, the, the genitalia, the penis and the vagina. Like, that's very simple. And it would make sense why groups like the LGBTQ or anybody that's trying to blur those lines, why they attack the flesh. They're, they're attacking the symbols because they don't even like the symbols. And so, anyway, she grabs the man's penis and brings it into the, her mother's house, her womb. It's like I'm bringing the man into the essence of who I am. Like I'm, I'm bringing the masculine into connection with the feminine. And then, okay, and let me tie it up in a big bow here. The whole idea of, of the biblical concept of marriage, and this is something, Brad, I know you know full well. So for those who are you know, not Christian or don't have a, a worldview like what Brad and I have, um, I'm trying to explain it for you guys. The whole concept of, of the, the male and female, the husband and wife, become one flesh, because that's the term that's used in English. Why? why? Like, what does that mean? Well, because originally it was one person, Adam, and then Eve was taken out of him from his side, from his rib, you know, whatever the term is. It's as if the essence of, of Eve was already present to some degree in Adam, as far as I can tell from just my understanding of the text. So God removes that while Adam's in a deep sleep and then brings her or sends her to Adam and maybe to wake him up. Uh, to some degree, but but regardless, the reason that one flesh even makes sense, it's not two things that are just coming together, it's literally like two halves, and so when you separate them and then make them distinct, but yet the same thing, it's like they're, they fit together, and so the whole basis for that is, well, the whole basis of marriage is, is contingent upon that idea that they were literally, not just symbolically, but literally at one point at the dawn of, of time, as far as we can tell, one person. And they're split into two parts, Adam and Eve, the masculine and the feminine. And so, okay, let me, let me tie it a little bit further. Let me tie this now a little further. If Adam in his original form um, was created in the image of God and then Adam is split into Eve and Adam, what does that say about the feminine and its connection with God? Because I've, there's so many religions out there, and even you know, cults or whatever. Like I've talked with with groups that would basically be some people call them cults. You know, maybe they are, maybe they aren't. There's cultic stuff. There's you know, whatever. But people that will have talk about like the mother God 
or God the mother. It's like it's the same God, but it's, he has a mother form and a father form. It's like, well, you know, again, could, could be a counterfeit, but you have ideas of even Jesus saying, like, hey, I'm a mother hen. Um, and again, you have the idea of Adam and Eve both being somehow connected to God, uh, you know, the... the, the you know, he created them in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. I'm butchering the, the passage. So it's like you see both of those. It's not that God is masculine. It's like the God is masculine and feminine together because both of those, like there was, feminine didn't derive itself with from something outside of God. Um, and so, okay, I, I could I could go further. The, the Canaanite religions of, you know, Asherah, uh, uh, and Baal and some of these, like they pull from those similar ideas of like a mother goddess. And I think some of those are very close. They're like counterfeits at the very least, but we don't recognize that because we don't think of God as a mother. And when we do, it's usually, it's like a, you know, the force is female. God is female. It's like that. It's coming from that kind of a thing where it's like, we hate men. (laughs) (laughs) It's, Oh, it's fascinating because what, what, like, what you're getting into here. This is actually this is heavily, heavily Judaic uh, thought. Because you, so you're absolutely right, right? If if Adam was created in the image and likeness of God, right, and Eve came out of Adam, and that means that Eve existed within Adam prior to being separated from him, mm-hmm. and that the Adam who was created in the image and likeness of God possessed both both the masculine and the feminine attribute, which means that God has both a masculine and feminine attribute, not personhood, attribute. Mm. God is a much more perfect being than we are. Part of our imperfection is that you and I as men possess a masculine attribute. We don't have the feminine attribute, right? Because that's what women have. This is why the marital union is so important, and this is why – so you within the Ten Commandments, right, you have five and five. You have you have two sets of commandments, which is interesting because Jesus gave the he gave the two commandments, right? Love love God, love your neighbor. Well, if you split up the Ten Commandments, that's what you get. You get love God and love your neighbor. Now, a lot of people will split it up four and six because honor your father and mother. Well, that sounds like a that sounds like a love your neighbor kind of thing, right? It has to do with an interpersonal relationship. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily directly correlated to loving God, but it is. Because our parents are co-creators with God, yeah, the creation of you, right? And that's that's how it started. That that is how that is how procreation started. Was God separating the natures, the masculine and the feminine, from one another so they could engage with one another to make procreation possible, right? So it's an inherently an acknowledgement of God for you to honor honor your father and mother. <clears throat> now. When it comes to understanding the the again the, this idea of God having multiple natures, right, or or attributes, multiple attributes that all make up God, this is something that Judaism understands very well. Which is why you have, I mean, throughout the Bible, how many different titles for God do you have? You have, uh, you you have El, you have Elohim, you have El Shaddai, you have Adonai, you have right, you you have uh, even the Shekinah or Shekinah. A lot of people call call it Shekinah, right? Mm-hmm. So, and, and what does that mean? That because I've heard Shekinah glory. What is that specifically? Right. So it that that is not an inaccurate uh, representation. The Shekinah is understood to be the abiding presence of God's glory. 
Okay. And was that, was that the, is that term used with like Moses on the mountain on Mount Sinai? Is that right? Or am I wrong? Um, so it's, I, I think it's understood that the, the Shekinah is what, uh, dwelt in the temple, uh, over okay. the mercy seat. That, that's, that's it. That's okay. Thank you for that. <laughs> and it is, it is understood actually that this is, uh, that, that females in particular, now this is more into Jewish mysticism and more Kabbalistic thought, but women in particular have a connection, uh, to the Shekinah that men do not experience unless they are intimate with their wives. That is where you experience a connection with the Shekinah in particular, right? Interesting. Because the, the Shekinah is understood to be part of that feminine attribute, right? Um, That's fascinating. And so in so, Jewish but, literature, it's always referred to as her. Okay, okay. Can you break that down again? So basically restate what you said, but that's – my mind is is processing that. So I know I can go back and listen to my own podcast back and I do that cuz I like to listen to what people are saying, you know, that I have on and so that's definitely going to happen but for for those who are listening to it and are only going to listen to it once, can you repeat that cuz that, that was really good. Right. So, the the Shekinah is understood to be um a, a feminine attribute of God. And you said it's always uh, referred to as a her and like in the, in the feminine. Her or she, right? Okay. Um, now it is it is understood in part right that the Shekinah it, it resides over at least in Judaism resides over a Jewish man like a flame like if if you could imagine that you are the wick right and the flame is is that spirit of God that hovers over you kind of thing. Um, so is this like Pentecost like Holy Spirit coming down and tongues of fire over their heads? Is that like a throwback? Um, I believe so. Yes and. Huh. And so, in, in so that you know that that's one. Then you got El Shaddai. So El Shaddai is is explicitly used in relation to procreation. Okay. You look at any of the times that El Shaddai is used throughout the Bible; it's always tied to fruit of the womb, so to speak. Right? It's always tied to childbearing. So in, in in a Jewish understanding, it is El Shaddai that you would appeal to regarding childbearing. If you're praying for a child, you would you you would you would appeal to El Shaddai, right? Not that this is a separate god, but that's the that's the attribute that you're appealing to. Yes. Right? So the idea of the masculine and the feminine is typically best understood as the difference between uh, Gevura, which in Hebrew is severity, and then Chesed, which is loving kindness, right? Because that is uh, – that's more or less one of the bigger differences between the masculine and the feminine, right? It's one of the bigger differences between men and women, right, is men tend to be on the more severe side, um, less less tender, much more uh, rigid, cold, and logically thinking. Mm-hmm. Whereas women are the more compassionate, more given uh, towards loving kindness. It's just inherently part of the nature between them, right? Now, struggle – and the reason we need each other is because each of those on its own can be a detriment. It, you, you have to have a balance of those two. And in fact, a balance of those two is what it takes to properly serve God, right? You, 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 so the idea of Gevura, that would be the fear would fall on that side, right? Whereas obviously love would fall on the side of Chesed. So love and fear together is what is called awe. In, in Jewish literature Ooh, is the combination cool. of love and fear. Love and awe. fear together is awe. 
That's like, look, okay, that's connecting ideas. Like, you look at the Niagara Falls. If you tried to go over that without any, you know, protection or whatever, like, you could die. But when you're looking at it from a distance, you're like, wow. So there's, like, a loveliness of it because you see the beauty, but there's also a danger that's involved. So there's a there's a, 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 a good... Yes, it's a it's a it's a it's a reverent fear. It's like, ooh, that could kill me. But if I'm at the right distance, if I'm if I'm observing it from the right distance, if I'm giving respect to it in the right way, then I can revere it and not be like, oh, I'm trembling in fear. It's going to kill me. It's like, which again goes back to the whole Mount Sinai experience, where <laughs> you know they're like, oh, please help us, Moses, because after what you just said and everything, like we're going to die. Save us, you know. <laughs> like, you know <laughs> The, the Midrash on that is fascinating. It actually, the Midrash uh, on it relates that they did die, that every time that God spoke, their souls left their bodies and that he restored <laughs> them, right? wow. that, that he literally raised, he raised them from the dead every time. Oh my goodness. That's cool. <laughs> I, yeah. And so, yeah, their, their pleading with Moses was, was because of how traumatic that experience was. <laughs> Dude, that puts a whole nother level because seriously, it's like, oh, okay, I just had an out-of-body experience. Oh, my goodness, it happened again. Please, please, we are going – it keeps coming back, but I feel like I'm about – oh, my goodness, it happened again. Like, <laughs> Right, you know. It, wow. It, it, yeah, there's – dude, there, there is a lot of uh, – there's a lot of interesting wisdom to be learned from some of the Jewish extra-biblical texts. Um, you know, and, and taken, taken for what they are, right? The Jews mm-hmm. would never tell you that the Midrash is scripture the same way that the Torah is. Um, but they do value it as, as, as being, uh, wisdom to be learned from and also being, as being true in many cases. Um, well, and I've said, understand, before, go ahead, go ahead. I was say, they understand that the Torah has a specific purpose, and that's the purpose that it serves, and that's what makes it so divinely awesome, right? But just because it's not written in the Torah doesn't mean it's not true. Yes, and I've said before with somebody on a podcast where I said, um, uh, I, I believe there's levels of inspiration. I think that's obvious when you think about it because I was talking to somebody. Um, I, was, I was saying, look, this is my basic position when it comes to Christianity and in respecting religious literature and people who are skeptical of the Bible because of their experiences with it and religion. I'm like, look, hold on a second. It's like every person, whether they say it or not, if they have the knowledge of it, you know, the even the people that do have knowledge of this, whether they realize it or not, they have to admit, unless they're just being arrogant or stupid. They have to admit that the Bible at one point did not exist in written form. It had to be written down, and it was progressive revelation. Like, this is obvious to anybody who knows anything about the Bible. So then the question is, okay, before it was written, what inspired its being written down? And did the did the revelation, you know, because, again, we're reviewing it as divine revelation. It's like, well, what was it revealed by? And... You know, to people who would be like, well, I don't know if you can trust it, man. It's just written by men. I'm like, yeah, it was written by men. So were all of the other religious writings that are out of there and the things that are quote-unquote not religious. It's like my question is deeper. My question is not, you know, was it written by God, you know, through some trance-like state? Like, no, no, no. My question is, why couldn't the Spirit of God divinely inspire and work through a person at a level of inspiration that's sufficient for 
whatever the Bible is. And why couldn't the same Spirit of God or other spirits who are lesser but still are working in tandem with them or on his side or whatever inspire other writing, inspire music, inspire poetry, artwork? Like, I mean, I've said it before. Many an artist comes up with whatever they're coming up with and they don't even know where they're getting inspired from. Like, from as far as they can tell, it happened from their own mind. But it's like, well... What was their mind influenced by? And you can see stuff where you're like, "Ooh, man, this looks like you were inspired by some dark stuff, or you know, some chaos, or something." Like, this looks kind of you know murkier. This is pretty. Oh, this kind of demonic. Like, oh, that's like the Joker and Batman. You wouldn't say the Joker is like, oh, he represents like a, a good, you know, God fearing individual. Like, no, you like he represents chaos and just and and you know maniacal laughter and and you know. And that's part of the point. And so anyway, there's, there, I guess what I'm trying to say is my question is not, you know, was the Bible like, oh, no, it was written by men. Uh, of course. Duh. That's a granted thing. The question is, was it inspired by anything? And I believe everything to some level was inspired by something. You know, I think our minds can conjure their own ideas, but I think our minds are directly, you know, connected to. And I mean, Think about it. You, I'm saying this to people who are listening. Have you ever had an idea that just came to your mind out of the blue and you're like, huh, I just thought of this. Now, we say that, but it's like, what if that idea was put into your mind, let's say telepathically, by something else that you don't even know exists because you don't believe in the spiritual realm? Or maybe you do, but you don't practically act as though. Like, I've had ideas drop into my mind that are fully packaged, and I'm going, I didn't think this through. This wasn't something where I went... A plus B equals C, and C plus D equals E. Therefore, A plus... Like, I didn't do that. It just happened. I'm like, okay, that that came from somewhere else. Like, I feel like, if anything, you know, an angel gave it to me. Well, what do you mean by that, Josh? Well, the name angel means messenger. So why couldn't there have been a messenger who delivered a, a, a message to me that was pertinent to what I was dealing with, and I wasn't aware of the angel being there because I don't have that level of sensitivity or whatever, but I mean, who knows? Like, there's there's just so much more. Where do ideas come from? And so, anyway, I'm I'm going off on tangents. But the point is, with the Bible itself and its inspiration, well, why couldn't we say that it has a very high level of inspiration? Maybe the highest level of inspiration. And I'm saying this for those who are skeptics. And then other things and songs have a lower level of inspiration, but they're still inspired. Like, why not? The the Torah itself expresses this actually. So. And in a number of ways. So first of all, when it comes to the canonization of the text, mm-hmm. um, there are there are two canons, right? You have the Christian canon, the Jewish canon. Understand the Christians did not decide what in the Old Testament was canon. Right? The Jewish canon already existed before the Christians canonized the New Testament. Yeah, so The New Testament is really the only thing they canonized. Now, there are varying opinions on when the Jewish canon came about, anywhere from the 2nd century BC to the 2nd century AD. Now, if, if you accept that later date, if you accept that the Christian canon came about in the 2nd century AD, you accept, or yeah, if you accept that the Jewish canon came about in the second century AD, 
And what you are accepting, if you accept that the new that the Old Testament is uh, divinely inspired, then what you are accepting is that an Orthodox religious Jew who did not believe in Jesus had the inspiration of the the Holy Spirit discern which books belonged in the Old Testament. Mm. That is what you are inherently accepting if you accept the later date. Um, which and there's there there's nothing wrong with that, but. Even within the Torah itself, right? So the Jews do have the what they call the oral tradition, or in some cases they'll call the oral Torah, right? Um, which is a passed down um, tradition of both stories from the Torah, right? Like I said, like I just mentioned, one of them, right? One of the details about the giving of Torah at Sinai mm-hmm. uh, that's not written in the Torah. It's not in the written Torah. This is part of the oral tradition, right? Um. The thing is, the written Torah itself references the oral tradition a number of times. And let and, me just let me just say this: I remember you mentioning this the first time, and I've heard other stuff before that about you know, the, like I've had the idea of there's oral traditions that were then recorded, like that started to make sense, um, you know, and why we have maybe such a limited amount of like in Genesis of, I mean, this could have been stuff that was passed on, and then. It, it, the reason it's almost at a myth level in terms of like a, a genre of literature is because these are just the scraps that were, you know, collected at some point and written down. Like that to me is fine, but still sufficient. But then when you were talking about like, uh, or when I came across the idea and you were one of the people that introduced me to it, that the written Torah literally references an oral tradition or an oral Torah that's not written down, but it references it. At first, I was like, that's I don't know what to make of that, but I was open to it. It makes more sense to me now because of a ton of reasons that I won't go into, but it makes more sense to me now after having molded over than it did at the beginning. Um, and part of it was I was like, I, I I didn't feel like ooh I have to reject that. That's you know that are you telling me there's more truth out there that's you know inspired and or and it was why not. Aren't there more truths than what are just represent what are stated specifically in Scripture? Like maybe all truths can find themselves embedded in some way, but it's not. Th- okay, let me say this: Jesus Christ did not go around just quoting the Old Testament. He literally spoke his. You know, hey Jesus, what do you want to have for lunch today? Oh, I think I want to have this. Like, did he go, man? Shall not like? Did, was he always? Qu- no, I think he was speaking truth. And there's tons of stuff that wasn't even recorded. It says, you know, we can't even record all the stuff that Jesus said it did. There'd be too many books. Like, we can't. So, so of course, there's more truth. And even truth that could be said inspired to the same level that the, the scriptures themselves are inspired. They just weren't written down. So that makes perfect sense to me. So anyway, keep going. <laughs> one, of the, one of the testaments to different levels of inspiration, right, um, is right before Miriam, right, the sister of Moses, is stricken with uh, leprosy. Yes. Okay. What, why? For, what, what happens, right? Well, she, she comes to Moses and, and is uh, a little prideful, right? She's, she's kind of wondering why he's getting so much preference, you could say. And she says, are we not also prophets? Right? Uh-huh. She's referring to herself and Aaron. Right. The response that God gives her is fascinating. Is, Keep going. <laughs> it's this. He says, 
he, he says, essentially, I don't speak to Moses the way I speak to you. I am yes. doing something completely different with Moses. I do not speak to him the way I speak to other prophets, right? I don't speak to him in visions and in dreams. I speak to him face to face. Dude, okay. There's a translation in English where he says, I speak to, I speak to Moses face to face. To you, I speak in riddles. Now, I don't know what yeah. the, the Hebrew word is, but it's, I think it's also what you were referencing there. That blew my mind because in 2019, just on a personal level, guys, when I was having my spiritual awakening, let's say, and starting to see stuff, I felt like I was wrestling with riddles and trying to figure them out. And people who don't know anything about kind of stuff like that and were kind of thinking I'm going off the deep end were like, bro, look, if this, if you're, in other words, if you're interpreting this wrong, then it's of the devil because it's causing chaos and all that and, you know, misunderstanding. And I'm sitting there, and I'm, I'm reading tons of Scripture, and I remember reading this passage that you just referenced and seeing it where it said, to them I speak in riddles. And I was like, oh, my goodness. Thank you, God, for that, because you just showed me. you For some reason, there's certain people that you communicate to in riddles. It's like, well, what's the purpose of that? I don't know. That was my answer at the time. I don't know why, but I at least have evidence that maybe what I'm going through is riddles from God and not just from Satan, as many people would claim, you know, <laughs> Josh, you're listening to the, the, the devil and, and, uh, this is a demonic spirit. And I'm like, no, I'm actually quoting scripture right here where it says this and not the riddle thing, but it says this right here. Well, no, no, you're listening to an evil spirit. I'm listening to the word of God here. What does this mean? Papa, you know, <laughs> or whatever, whoever I'm talking to, you know, I, I love my, my, grandparents i want to say that but sometimes i'm like come on guys i'm literally quoting scripture and you're claiming i'm listening to an evil spirit that doesn't make sense (laughs) do you read your bibles look don't quote the scriptures to me okay then read them come to your own conclusion like sorry i'm getting a little fired up but the riddle thing so go back to that go back to that (laughs) one of the one of the things i love about this example is this is another example where there's actually a direct reference to uh, the to the oral tradition, right? So we understand that Miriam is called a prophetess, right? Mm-hmm. Where does she ever give prophecy? That's a good question. Huh. Never happens. It's never recorded in the Bible. It is recorded in the Midrash, though. Ooh. Is that that when Pharaoh's edict about killing young boys came about, right? Um that Moses' parents separated, right? And they, because they didn't, they, they didn't want to cohabitate uh, for, for, at, for, you know, because of the risk of possibly becoming pregnant and having a young boy who would suffer this fate. Mm. So they separated, and it was Miriam who came to her father and essentially said, you need to take mom back into your life. You need, you need to take your wife to you because... If you do right, uh, increase, if you do have children, that child will be the one who delivers us. So, okay, so you're saying that it, Miriam was the one who, that dude, that's. He's the one who prophesied that Moses would be the one to deliver them. Wow. That is where she gives prophecy. That's cool. Dude, I wish that right. had made it into the Prince of Egypt. Shout out to that film, man. That would have been so cool. 
<laughs> and, and there's when it comes to the riddles, right? You mentioned that, and this is the kind of riddle we see an example of this in Jeremiah. Now, this is going to be a shout out to one of the uh, Jewish forms of exegesis. So, when we think of exegesis in the Christian world, we think of it very narrow mindedly. There are four modes. Well, there's actually more than four, but there are four primary modes of exegesis. Thank you for saying all this because I've gotten flack for exegeting scripture, and they're like, "Dude, you're reading into it." And I'm like. No, Paul used symbolic. He goes, this can be interpreted spiritually or symbolically or allegorically, depending on how you translate the word into English. And he uses the whole (laughs) Mount Sinai and Hagar and Sarah. I remember going going toe-to-toe with a a, a local, uh, like, he he wasn't the head pastor, but he's one of the pastors of a church group. And he's like, dude, you're totally like, how dare you even? This is not what it's saying. I'm like, look. And he gives an explanation of the literal interpretation. I was like, dude, I agree with everything you said. But Paul does this. All of this was symbolic, but it's also literally true. It happened historically, and he never responded. Now, maybe he didn't read the thing, but I think I silenced him in a very very respectful way because I wasn't trying to be a jerk. I was just saying, dude, Paul does this. Why can't I interpret it the same way that he's kind of doing or at least attempt it? You know, maybe I'm wrong in the way I'm interpreting it, but the means by which like the, the, the layer of meaning that I'm trying to use trying to exegete at is different than what you're doing, but I think it's still true. I don't think I, I don't think it's eisegesis. I don't think it's reading into it. Okay, so you mentioned there are four different ones. Go ahead and continue with that. Right. So, yeah, it, the, the, the word that is used to describe them both is pardes, right, which is – or P-R-D-S because it stands for Peshat. Peshat is the literal interpretation. What like Like what does it bare bones? What does it literally say? Right. And that does always take precedence, which is to say that you can't use the others as a means of usurping what it literally says. But the the others can find their place um, rooted in what it literally says, more or less. In other words, that what the literal interpretation is the foundation. Anything else can be built from there, more okay. or less. Um, and the R stands for remez. Um, remez is like what it what is it hinting at what is it like not directly saying but kind of you know like if you were to really search out what it what it is kind of guiding to what is what is that right and there's any number of of interpretations that can come from that kind of a mindset so can, uh, can i interject something on that this reminded me as, as you said that about um a little english like a little I don't know if it's an English game or something, but it was a statement that was like, look, emphasize, like put emphasis on each of these different words and it changes the whole meaning of the statement. And it was something yes. like, he lo- like he loved only her. So it's he loved only her. He only, or it's like put the word only in different places. I think that's what it was. So only he loved her. He only loved her. He loved only her. Uh, he loved her only. Like it was something like that, where it was like depending on where you place the word, it it changes the meaning of the statement. And sometimes the the statement itself, you don't have to move words around, but depending on what you put like in bold, let's say, it could change it. So it it could imply something that's beyond just the statement itself. So okay, anyway, that just came to my mind. So that's the remez. Okay. Yeah, remez. Now, Darush is uh, the comparative, right? It's where we get the word midrash from. Midrash, right? Darush, Darush. That's that's the same uh, same Hebrew root there. 
which is the again it's it's the comparative um and also kind of to uh to to seek out and this is where one of the one of the ways of doing this right because hebrew is a funny language and it's very very dependent on vocalization right mm. so the same hebrew letters can be vocalized more than one way and in other words the the same if i were to if i were to take the letters t b and l right because hebrew doesn't actually have vowels uh-huh. um so uh, that that obviously would sound like table right That's the words for table, right? But what if I were to put other vowels there other than table? What what would it sound like if I put different vowels there? Now, Hebrew works this way. There are multiple words that all have the exact same letters, but they're vocalized differently. And so it's a different word and it means something different. Now, part of as part of Darash, what you can do is play around with that because the original Torah text did not have vowel points. Now, when we read a modern Torah scroll today, it has vowel points. Those were added by the Ben Asher family. It's what we call the Masoretic text. The Masoretic text is where they added vocalizations to the text of the Torah. Right? Okay. Which even that is based on the oral tradition, specifically because of what I'm about to point out. Right. So there's a verse in the Torah that says, "You shall, uh, you shall not eat." Uh, Meat that has been cooked in its mother's letters are Chet, Lamed, and Beit. Okay. Right? Another verse of the Torah that says, You shall never ever eat Chet, Lamed, and Beit. Right? Now, this word, these letters can be vocalized one of two ways. It can either be um, Alav, right? which is milk. And then there's chelev, which is fat, right? When you read the verse, it says not to see the kid in its mother's milk. That's that chet, lamed, and bait. When you read a verse, the verse that, that says the fat around the organs you shall not eat, you, you, you are to burn it on the altar. Mm-hmm. Same, same three letters, chet, lamed, and bait. Now, without an oral tradition, how would you know which one was which? Mm. That makes it, sense. The, the very way that Hebrew scholars are taught to read the Hebrew text today is predicated on the oral tradition, right? The, the oral tradition that the Ben Asher family inserted into the text is that one verse says, you shall not see the kid in his mother's milk, but it could have just as easily said, you shall not cook a kid in his mother's fat. Interesting. So the, right? okay, okay, I'm tracking with you. Another one might've said, you shall never drink milk, right? You shall never ingest milk. You shall burn that on the altar. <laughs> right so it, it it yeah there 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 are a few different ways that that could go we depend entirely on the oral tradition just to read the hebrew text as it is now when it comes to playing around with with vocalizations like this we know that god actually affirms this because he does this with jeremiah right this is where the riddle comes in so god asks jeremiah this is jeremiah chapter one uh starting in verse 11 uh, in a Hebrew version, uh, the the Hebrew and English, or the yeah, the basically the Jewish Bible and the Christian Bible are enumerated differently, and that's because they end and begin their chapters on different verses, same verses, but they might end or, or begin on different verses. Okay, so it might be in a in a 
Chris Jeremiah one twelve or like one ten, but in mine in in the Jewish version, it's Jeremiah one eleven. Um, says the word of the Lord came to me. What do you see, Jeremiah? I replied, I see a branch of an almond tree. Lord said to me, you have seen right, for I am watchful to bring my word to pass. Now, what does that have to do with, what does an almond tree have to do with God being watchful? Uh Uh-huh, I've wondered the same. (laughs) Right. This is where reading Hebrew is important, because this is where the riddle happens, because of what I just said, vocalization. So the word here, or almond tree, is shaked. Okay, shaked. Shaked. The word for watchful is shoked. Say that, shoked. Shoked, shoked and shaked. Huh. So God showed Jeremiah an almond an almond tree so that Jeremiah's mind would think shaked and then think about those letters and how they could also translate as shoked to mean that God is watchful, bring his huh. word to pass. That's interesting. Entirely so God in uses puns. So the ultimate dad joke was made. Well, one of the ultimate dad jokes was just made by God to Jeremiah. And he looked, okay. The first chapter I've read before because I had um, a, a a pastor friend and his son when he was little, like when he was little, like really young, he was listening to a lot of scripture on audio because they were just doing that. And uh, they named the son Benjamin. And I remember saying to him, I was like, dude, I have a sense that like Benjamin just likes the book of Jeremiah. Like I think Jeremiah might be, you know, one of his favorites or something. I just, and because and I, part of it was I heard him listening to Jeremiah, um, you know, or Anyway, there's a whole thing there. But then I was like, wait a minute. The, the beginning says the words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin. I was like, oh, okay. Well, maybe he likes that because his name's there. But then uh, verse verse um, 6, where God says to Jeremiah, um, yeah, but the Lord said to me, do not say I am only a youth, for to all to whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. So anyway, I, I remember thinking, I was like, huh, I could, you know, a little kid listening to it might be thinking, especially if they liked Jeremiah, and then Jeremiah, so in other words, I guess I was, I'm seeing a parallel now, it's like God's talking to a young child and doing a dad joke. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's where my mind but, was going with this, so keep going. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that, I mean, that's one of the riddles, right? That's, this is a prophet that God spoke to him in a riddle. It was something that he had to figure out, and it's something that was entirely dependent on the Hebrew language and how it works, right? We don't get that in the English translation. We miss that entirely, mm. something you can only see if you can actually read the Hebrew text, Right. It's like trying to um, listen to a rap song that's being translated from its native tongue into whatever your language is, and being like, "This doesn't make I, this. I doesn't flow." It's like, "Yeah, it doesn't." <laughs> right, and and this is one of those things where, right, because rabbis will do this all the time. Rabbis will play around with the vocalization of a word, and 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 be like, "Okay, well, what if it were this word instead? What would we derive from the text if we just made it this word instead of that word?" Right? They're not changing the letters; they're changing the vocalization, and it makes it a different word. And I've had a lot of naysayers be like, "Well, no, you can't do that. You you can't just change the vocalization. It says what it says." And I'm like, "Well, God did it." <laughs> 
that's exactly what he does right here. <laughs> yes. Well, and th- this is a little bit different, but the other thing that comes to my mind, which I've mentioned a ton of times in person with people and maybe on my podcast as well, where Jesus is talking with Nicodemus and he uses the same Greek word, as far as I can remember, for wind and spirit, because it is the same word. And so he's saying, look, the, the wind goes, you know, wherever it wills, you don't see it, but you see the effects of it, you know, something like that. And he goes, so it is with the spirit, but he's literally making a pun. Uh, but he's making a point. <laughs> so right. you even see that with the exact same word where there's a different meaning. So why not with, with words that sound similar and God knows, you know, hey, if I say this word, it's going to trip. Like what? this gets down to a personal level too where God is a personal God. So he's doing this knowing that Jeremiah is going to make that connection. It's almost like he's, it's it's almost like he's, trying to have a cool conversation with his son. It's not like this, I'm this stoic, you know, stoic God that has to speak. No, no, he's like, hey, uh, what do you see here? What do you think? Oh, I see an, an almond branch. Oh, I, get, I see what you're saying. God. Ah, that, that's pretty clever. Like, yeah, good. You've seen well for I'm watching over my word to perform it. Hey, you get the pun? Hey. Like, it's more like I- that. <laughs> Go ahead, go ahead. No, yeah, it, and it's beautiful. And this is the kind of thing that you actually you see throughout the text, right? Uh, and, and It's almost it, like a, see what I did there? <laughs> <laughs> right, and, it's, and it, it, it's incredible every time that it happens. And there are so many, like, there are so many, so many things that can be learned just from the text of, of Scripture, which this is a lot of the Jewish extra-biblical text, a lot of the Talmud, right? It, this is what it is. It's actually rabbis expounding on stuff like this that we just we just discussed. Um, and it's because of their use of their, their forms of exegesis, right? Like especially in the comparative sense, that's actually extremely important. So there is a ministry that I highly support, highly recommend uh, called Aleph Beta. Uh, it is headed off by Rabbi David Foreman, and his lessons, a lot of what he does is he draws directly from where there is verbatim quotation, right? In other words, you know, in this story, in this, the story of Solomon, it uses these this exact phrasing, but that is identical to the phrasing that we see here in the Joseph story with his brothers. It's the exact same Hebrew phrasing. So what can we learn by comparing these two narratives? Why are they phrased identically to one another? You know, and and uh, matter of fact, that's one that we just watched uh, yesterday for Tish B'Av, um, which is the uh, anniversary of the destruction of the temple. And mm. uh, he expounds on exactly that, right? Because there is a certain there's a certain Torah portion that is read. The Torah is portioned out so that it's read on a cycle every year. And so a Jew from New York can go visit a Jewish community in California. They will be on the exact same part of the Bible, right? Okay. Um, so you can visit anywhere in the world and you won't be missing a beat. You'll have read the same part of the Torah that those Jews have read because it's on a cycle, um, now, obviously, on leap years, the cycle may shift a little bit, and they have things to account for that. And one of them is that in this particular – right on, on particular years, very rarely, the story of Solomon and the, uh, the two women that we brought up earlier, right? The, uh, the story of the, the child that he was going to divide in half between these two mothers, that story will take the place of – the reconciliation between Joseph and his brothers. 
Interesting. It is it is very specifically because so much of the wording between those two passages is identical and they directly correlate to one another. There's a deep message to understand about the connection between these two stories and it's something that I I I would have never in my life considered had somebody not pointed out that hey in hebrew these are phrased the same way and so let's put ourselves in their in their shoes why would they have said these words these exact words right um and yeah it's it's just it's incredible and i i love his teaching material it's it's awesome see we're gonna have to i'm gonna have to put a link or or, or something a shout out to that in the uh in the description as well because right now when you're saying that i'm like i'm my mind is going okay how can i parallel that because so I would have never drawn a conclusion like that, I don't think, you know, unless there was divine inspiration, <laughs> you know, that was kind of pushing those two things together uh, with, you know, just reading the English text. And so just from you saying that, I'm like, okay, well, now how do I parallel this? Now, maybe if I thought on it more, I could start to kind of figure out stuff. But uh, let me just say this. I've For a while now, I keep saying, like, at some point I'm going to study the Hebrew. Because I've studied Koine Greek in college. I had two semesters of it. I'd like to get back into it. Uh, there was a point where I actually, when I was moving from South Korea back to the States, and guys, for those of you who haven't uh, listened to any podcast where I mentioned this, because I think I did, but I was in South Korea for three years teaching English as a second language. It was an amazing experience. There's reasons why I left. There were pros and cons, but I loved being over there. One of the saddest parts about moving back to the States, other than I felt homesick for South Korea, was a one of my boxes that I sent over that had a lot of keepsakes in it, a lot of like uh, uh, parting gifts, you know, letters and stuff from my students. That was lost in the mail, and I was so like just, you know, not broken hearted, but it was like, oh, man. And one, one, some of the things that were in it was my Greek New Testament, um, and some of the other Greek books and stuff that like textbook things, I was like, oh man, come on! So I'll have to, I'll have to get those at some point. But if I had those, I would have probably tried to stay, you know, utilizing them to some degree, just because of you know you're getting closer to what the original text was. Now Hebrew is one that I'm like, I would love to get into that at some point. So I, it's on the back burner as like a, um, a pursuit that I want to do at some point in the future, and. At, at first was just like, okay, this will help me understand stuff because you're again, getting a step closer. But now when I hear more and more stuff about the actual like poetry of it and the puns and the the little kind of clues and hints where it's like, ooh, that sounds similar. Like I, that to me is interesting. Like that, that, that makes it even more of like, a, ooh, this would be fun. Ooh, this is like riddles. This is like a Sherlock Holmes mystery. And the more that you read it, because that already happens, like – Okay, to, to shout out Jordan Peterson once again and to tie back the idea of the mind and, and God having a mind. and um, Jordan Peterson made a statement. This was in one of his many lectures on YouTube somewhere. But I remember hearing it, and I was like, oh, my goodness. I cannot believe he just said this. But he said he was talking about the Bible as being like the first hyperlink text. because it just, Yes. Yes, and he says, uh, he goes, it's like a mind. When he said that, I was like, Oh my goodness! Like, oh no, you didn't. <laughs> it was one of those moments because I'm thinking of the verse where Paul says, "But we have the mind of Christ," 
And I'm like, if the Bible is like a mind, if this literature is, is referencing itself, self-referencing back and forth like a mind, and even somebody who's not looking at it as, this is divinely inspired from God. Like he's not saying that at this point. He's just saying it's like a mind. It's like, well, man, if that's not a great argument from a secular person, and again, Jordan Peterson's had a, a journey since then to where he almost to the point where he's calling himself a Christian now to some degree, you know, whatever you make of that. But the point is, at this point in time, he's a secular dude saying, this is like a mind. And then this goes back to what we were talking about. Okay, take this and take the mind of God and try and distill it and translate it and dumb it down to a point where we can interact with it. And yet we still see, you know, all of the links and stuff here, even in English or other languages. So how much well, more so... Yes, it's living and active. Like, <laughs> so it's like then take that to the level of, okay, now we have another layer of meaning with the Hebrew and the sound of it. And, uh, okay, like Chinese, different tones of, of things have different meanings. Um, you know, like, and I don't know Chinese, but like if you said, uh, 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 like those would be three different meanings. And so then how do you speak that language? Well, speaking it uh you're going to hear it differently and so if there's different ways of of you know uh representing meaning through tones well then what does it mean to to speak it in its native tongue you know all of that and this actually gets into a whole other topic that we won't delve into but i've been thinking a lot about the concept of speaking in tongues uh you know which was is a brand new thing but that's something that's been thematically popping up in my life uh since june 9th of this year and the idea of like heavenly tongues and maybe there being meaning that's embedded in the tones and specifically in the manner in which it's spoken through the human mouth, you know, things like that, which again connects to like the idea of an oral tradition being maybe able to communicate more than just uh, what the written text is or a fuller idea of it. And, you know, maybe the idea of like sign language or body language, like I'm trying to kind of, I'm right on the cusp of like the, I'm I'm at the edge of my knowledge at this point. I'm kind of grasping for, you know, the infinite, as it were. You know, to use the Jordan Peterson idea, I'm on the edge between order and chaos, and I'm reaching out into the abyss, let's say, only not in a dark sense, just reaching out into the open air going, did I already use this metaphor on this podcast? I'm Peter Pan trying to take some steps out and hope that I don't yep. fall. You know, it's, it's maybe the Indiana Jones reference of taking a step of faith and then going, oh, there is ground here. It's camouflage. Like, <laughs> I feel like that's kind of what I'm doing, but it's like there's something there, and, and I'm even picking up on themes and, and pieces even just in the podcast we're doing right now. So, <laughs> ah, it, it's good, man. I'll just pause there. I don't even know where I'm going with it. I'm just kind of just speaking my mind right now. <laughs> it's, you know, it speaks to the nature of God's unsearchableness. You know, it's, it's one of those things where, and, and when you really dive down the path of, you know, learning some of the, the Judaic knowledge uh, that there is to learn about the Torah, um, it, it like every time you learn something new, it, all it really does is open up this, this vast window of other possibilities of stuff that you don't know. So it's like the more you learn, the more you realize you just don't know anything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which, yeah, I mean, even again, even like the, the Aristotle type peoples of, of, you know, throughout history of like, okay, I'm going to make it funnier since we're trying to inject humor. There was a game that was a it was a computer game by Humongous Entertainment. They came up with a lot of good, you know, kid friendly or kid 
styled. It built the humor that my my brother and I specifically. My fi- he's five years younger than I am. We uh, we played a game called Pajama Sam. I don't know if anybody on here is listening has ever heard of Pajama Sam. There were three different ones. I think a fourth one that was made that had a different voice actor for it that we never played as kids. But in one of them, there's <laughs> it's a funny game. It's like this kid who is uh, awake at I think the first one he's awake at night. And he's kind of taken on this like superhero character called, he calls himself Pajama Sam, and he's got a mask and everything. And he has this epic adventure that's kind of in his imagination of, of what his house is like. Uh, but he's imagining it in like a fantastical sense. And so anyway, in one of the things, he goes into like a, a kitchen space or whatever where there's like potions and there's a book that he can you know, read and it, it rhymes and he puts, you know, green and yellow potions together and it creates something or whatever and something happens, just some goofy stuff. Well, there's one where he, he <laughs> I forget what the, the line is for it, but you mix together two two colors or whatever. And then this this mouse that's, it's like a, a, a humanoid mouse that is dressed in a clown suit and it just appears out of nowhere and it goes, the wisest man is he who understands that he understands nothing. And then Pajama Sam goes, but how can he understand if he understands nothing? And then the rat goes, or the, the mouse goes, ah, you begin to understand, and then just disappears. <laughs> and Pajama Sam just kind of puts his hands up in the air like, I have no clue what that was. <laughs> so stuff like that, I remember those things stuck out to me because I'm like, as a kid, I'm going, yeah, that makes sense. Like, how did that, that sounds kind of ridiculous. But there is some level of truth to it where it's like the more you know, the more you realize, oh, my goodness, the bounds of what I know, you know, the, the circle gets bigger. And so now it's like there's more that I don't know because my circle of knowledge has increased. And so it's like ever expanding into the infinite. And so you keep finding more and more that you don't know the more that you know. <laughs> it's right. something like that. And so it's like there is a sense in which like the wisest man is the one who goes, hey, man. You know, it's it's the Proverbs thirty, uh, where he says like I am too stupid. Well, let me let me let me pull it up real quick since I'm. I think this will speak it better. Yeah, the words of you know, Agur or Agur, son of Jake or J.K. <laughs> the Oracle. The man declares, "I am weary, O God. I am weary, O God, and worn out. Surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One." Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is his son's name? Surely you know. And continues on and on. But it's just funny that the proverb starts out with, which is wisdom literature, I am too stupid to be a man. <laughs> I feel like there's some humor there. He's kind of saying like, look, look, I'm, I'm, I'm too stupid even to call myself a man. Like I've got it. Like this is just... <laughs> Ah, uh, it's this has been this has been good. <laughs> Absolutely, guys. I I feel like we're coming to a wrap up point, but I don't want it to stop. But at the same time, I feel like this is a good a good little um like we're 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 coming to a good pause for part one. And I wasn't even planning for this. I was thinking around the three hour mark, and we're a little bit past that. Um. There was something else I was going to mention, though, um, and it had to do, I was going to try and tie up, it was kind of the talk of the Trinity and then sexuality, and there was something I was going to use as like a teaser. Oh, that's what it was. Okay. So I'm going to throw this out here. I, I, want, to get your, I want to get your thoughts on this, maybe, and this can be something we can lead into a, a summary or conclusion, uh, or a, yeah, more of like a summation. 
But I've wondered with speaking in tongues, the Trinity, and sexuality. This I'm, I'm seeing all these things converge with this potentially. Guys, don't don't fault me for this. If I'm off base here, that's fine. I'm just thinking. So it talks about that the Holy Spirit, if I if I remember this correct, intercedes for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. Like that's kind of the terminology used, at least in in one of the English translations. Now, again, this is going to upset anybody who is like, not anybody, but I can, I can, I'm, I can imagine the stereotypical kind of prudish, you know, grandparents' age or even my parents' age, looking like, how dare you bring this up? But I don't care, and I've mentioned this on my uh, forbidden sexuality thing. I don't care about this. I'm just trying to wrestle with the scriptures. And as you said, uh, Brad, before the podcast started, I believe. Like there's so much that <laughs> is more overt, but it's kind of been watered down with the way the English translations are. But yep. I've wondered, I'm like, okay, groanings that cannot be uttered. I'm not trying to say that the, the Holy Spirit is groaning in a sexual way in this indication, but it at least connects the idea where I'm like, well, when sexual intimacy is happening on a level that's very profound, there are groanings that occur. You know, it's the moaning, it's the orgasm, it's the trying to express the inexpressible to some degree. And part of me wonders, and I've, I've heard jokes about this. I remember a, a campus pastor at my college, he made a statement which made everybody literally groan. They were like, oh, come on, man, because it was kind of embarrassing for his wife. But at the same time, looking back, I'm like, you know what? Maybe the guy's on to something in some way. But he goes, I believe in speaking in tongues. I'm married. And, you know, of course, everybody's like, oh, come on, man. Like, that was kind of... But again, it's like, I've thought about it. I'm like, you know what? What if, you know, what if there's a level of, of speaking in tongues that we do engage in as human beings and we don't even realize it? And then there's the knowledge of, of speaking in tongues, which is more of the spiritual gift that's given. You know, I've wondered, you know, about stuff like, okay, babies, you know, when they're just, ah, 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 you know, are they, is there some kind of a sense and where they've, you know, the, the spirit returns to the one that gave it. You know, there's verses like that. You know, where's the soul come from? Is there, you know, I don't know. This is all the I don't know stuff, which is where I like to stay. I like to be on that that bridge or that space between the known and the unknown. And so I've just tried to wonder, like, is there a sense in which the groanings that occur, the moanings that occur in a, in a sexual experience of intimacy, um, and maybe it's that it's like there's there's things that are being communicated which we that resonate with you know the married couple in Song of Solomon or whatever and in real life but there's moanings and groanings there that communicate like you have affected me deeply like you you're you are caressing my soul you are massaging my soul you are uh, um, again if the soul is, is symbolized by the genitalia then what does it mean to interact with that in a loving way, the way that Song of Solomon describes it, whether it's oral stimulation or physical stimulation or the, you know, the, the, the united or the, I'm trying to think of the word, the bringing together of male and female on a soul level. Like some of this, again, makes sense why people come up with terms like soulmate or soul tie. And you know, we can talk about that and, and discuss whether that's a Christian thing or it's a perversion or a counterfeit or doesn't matter. I'm talking about just the reason why those terms exist. It's like, okay, there's stuff being communicated in that act of, of unity of intimacy. And if it's done in a pure way where it leaves the, the marriage bed undefiled, if it's, if it's, if it's undefiled and all this is happening, 
well, maybe there's some level where it's like part of why it's so meaningful is because it's there's an element of the divine there. And so then if you go to the idea of intimacy and broaden it to beyond mere just sexual acts or whatever, and you have the intimacy of the Holy Spirit literally interceding on our behalf, going, okay, you don't know what to pray for, but I know what you're trying to say with your you know, English language or whatever. So I'm going to interce- <clears throat> excuse me, intercede on your behalf and express this. Like I'm here, I'm the helper. Like some of those things start to kind of make sense from like I see I see a convergence, let's say, of these ideas into something. And so that's a teaser for maybe a future podcast. <laughs> but go Absolutely. ahead. <laughs> go ahead and give some some I want to at least give you a chance to to wrap up some some thoughts and maybe you don't have to comment on what I said. If you want to throw some stuff out there as a teaser, then feel free. Just whatever, man. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I mean, you know, definitely it, when it comes to the idea of um, the Holy Spirit interceding on our behalf uh, with respect to groanings that cannot be uttered, you know, um, I, I definitely do think that there's uh, there there are aspects of that that have an emotional complexity that probably have not been completely thought out by many, um, you know, because that's uh, that's the whole idea. Like you mentioned, is that the emotions we experience really are, um, in in a way, intended to help us better comprehend and understand uh, the level in which we're supposed to relate to God. Right. That's that's mm. the whole aspect of the lived experience is intended to be that. And when it comes to understanding God, again, because that's 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 our our attempt to try and connect to him is 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 to to try and understand God. And so, you know, I understand there's probably a lot of Trinitarians that will disagree with a lot that I've said tonight. Um but uh you know that Ooh. I, I can, can I ask one question? Because that reminded me of something I wanted to ask. So this is kind of like a, a summary, but a hint. So you believe Jesus is the Christ, meaning the Savior, and I do too. So can you hint at like, what what does it mean? So Jesus is the Son of God. He's the Savior. And there's different, like... I don't even know how to say it without uh, without trying to like. I'm not fishing for an answer. I'm actually trying to see like. Oh, let me let me say this. Let me say this. I am open to the idea that there could be people who say Jesus is Lord, and they don't even know what that means in terms of whether or not Jesus is God. If that's the conclusion, that's correct. So, in other words, there could be a Jehovah's Witness out there who believes that Jesus is Lord. And they're in the Jehovah's Witnesses group, and they're somebody who, if they died, they would go to heaven and be in paradise. They'll be with God forever. Ah. That's that's yeah. kind of where I lean to because in their mind they're like Jesus is Lord. Whatever He tells me to do, I got to do, and I believe like that's as, that's as far as my creed goes. I confess that, but I don't know whether He's God or not. Now I, you, again, I'll say my position. I believe to the best of my ability, that he was God in some sense. In some sense, that's the best I can say. Now, I don't want to reopen the Trinity thing. I'm not necessarily convinced that there's only three members, let's say, of the Trinity. There could be way more. Like, I don't know. There's a threeness revealed to some degree, but 
that's why I don't view myself as a Trinitarian. <laughs> but if Jesus doesn't, if the Bible doesn't say you have to confess Jesus Christ as God, I think there's a level of, let's say, there's a level of ambiguity that is permitted to the degree in my mind to which somebody who says, I don't know about all that. I just know that Jesus Christ is Lord, and I, I just believe he's, he's Lord, and I'm confessing him as Lord, and so he's my Savior. And if I were to die today, I, you know, I go with wherever he goes. And I think, you know what? <sighs> Jesus on the cross says, you're going to be with me in paradise, to the guy that just said, hey, remember me when you go to my kingdom, or when you go to your kingdom. And there's scriptures right. like, I will have mercy on those whom I will have mercy and I'll have compassion on those whom I will have compassion. Why couldn't God, if he's desperate to get relationship, to have reconciliation with his creation, why would he not do everything within his power? Because it seems like he's willing to do everything within his power to reconcile his lost children to him. And so when he sees the heart of the man who's on the cross, who was mocking him from one of the Gospels, both of them are mocking, one of them stops and goes, you know what? Just remember me, man. That's all I care. That's that's all I'm asking. It's just remember me when you enter into your kingdom. Like I see there's something there. And then Jesus yeah. goes, You're coming with me, man. I got you. I'm having mercy on you. Like, why couldn't he do that? And if he's willing to do that, why not the person who goes, I don't know, man. I have an infinite I have an infant level of of the gospel, of the good news, and all I know is Jesus is Lord and that's enough for me. I'll follow what you say. Like why not that? So that that's I'm I'm sharing my position, and I know there's a lot of people who would just throw start throwing stones at me and go for it, man. <laughs> well, you know, so here here's the fascinating thing when it comes to the subject of soteriology. Um, the 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 verse that you've just cited is actually one of the better ones uh, for arguing against the idea that belief that Jesus is God incarnate. Uh, is not necessary for salvation, right? It's not a soteriological issue, and that's because it says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, Lord, the word the word here is kurios, uh, would be an equivalent to uh, Adoni in Hebrew, which just means master, right? Or Lord in the the old English sense, right? As in the Lord of the land. Um, is that the same as Adonai, or is that different? So yeah, Adonai and and Adoni, they're they're Adoni. it's the it's essentially the same word but vocalized differently. Okay, um, and and there are various reasons for why one would vocalize it differently, but they both essentially mean the same thing. Okay, that's what um, I thought. I wanted to make sure that that was yeah. Anyway, keep going. <laughs> and and so you know this this word kurios it does not have direct deistic. Uh, connotations. So if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is, you know, the the master, right? Which is that's that's what a lot of us in the Torah observant community call him because that's what that is what a a disciple would refer to their rabbi as. They wouldn't refer to him as rabbi, they would refer to him as master. Um and they would refer to other rabbis as rabbi, but your direct rabbi you refer to as master, which is an interesting thing when it comes to Judas and his betrayal, right, is because he greets Jesus as not master, but rabbi. It's, it's kind of a huge disrespect, right? Um, but in, in, in any case, right, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is master and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, 
shall be saved. Yes. So what do you, what do you have to believe? Mm-hmm. And and who is the object of it as opposed to Jesus, right? So that's that's where that's where the subject of soteriology kind of deviates from there. And I, I you know I I don't like making anything that is not directly explicitly spelled out in scripture into a soteriological issue, right? Yeah. When it, when it becomes when you start making other things into salvation issues, we start getting into very dicey area. And you know, as a as somebody who does practice Torah. There are many in my community who would turn the issue of Torah observance into a an issue of salvation. I do not side with them at all. However, I will say from a scriptural standpoint, I can build a stronger case that Torah is a salvific issue than I can that the Trinity is a salvific issue. And I, I, the funny thing is I've never attempted that myself, but I'm inclined to agree with you just based on <laughs> – based on all the conversations we've had thus far. Right. It's, you know, and, and so that's, that's not a position that I personally take. And really when you, when you take revelation into account, it's kind of somewhere in the middle. So, because revelation speaks about those who have the testimony of Jesus and keep the commandments of God. Well, now we have a problem here because if we're going to try and limit this to, know, specifically the Torah practicing uh, Jesus believing movement that cuts both Christianity and Judaism off, right? The, so you, you, you essentially have Christians who believe in Jesus, but don't practice Torah. They're not saved. And Jews who practice Torah, but don't believe in Jesus. They're not saved, right? That's, that's what happens there. Or mm. we can make it all inclusive. The problem is that a lot of, a lot of people, even in the Torah practicing community, they still lean very hard Christian, so they're they're willing to accept non-Torah practicing Christians on that basis, but they still want to reject faithful Jews on the basis that they don't make a profession to Jesus. But that that's not what Revelation says. Revelation says those who have a faith in Jesus and do the commandments of God. And so you you kind of have to take this either either it's only those who do both, or it's those who do both, either or. Mm. You get what I mean? Yes. And see, you can't okay. really have it both ways. It's, it's either one or it's the other. And I'm not comfortable with cutting off, you know, both Christianity and Judaism on that basis to say that only people who believe in Jesus and practice Torah are saved. Uh, that's not something I'm comfortable with doing. Mm. So if I'm going to accept you know, the idea that non-Torah practicing Christians are saved, then I have to I, I have to also accept the idea that the Jew who loves God with all of his heart but does not believe that Jesus is the Messiah for the sake of the fact that, like we discussed earlier, Jesus did not fulfill the mission of the Messiah as that Jew understands the Messiah. Mm. I, I can't condemn him on that basis. That's... Do the okay, <sighs> guys. This is what I was okay. I'm gonna wrap it up, and, and I'll tell you why, guys. This is what I was saying at the beginning of the podcast. I was like, we're not gonna be able to finish this conversation, and that's the point. Like this, part of why I wanted to do a podcast in the first place, just podcasts in general, is to have conversations and to model those types of conversations for other people. Because I knew, I was like, I love having conversations with people from different perspectives. 
you know, that's, I feel like that's the only thing I'm, I'm really good at in any sense is, is just talking with people and listening to what they're saying and interacting with it and then going, Ooh, here's a cool thing that came to my mind and then running with that and then going like, dude, we got to do this again. And so <laughs> we're going to have to have a part two. Now here's the thing. I looked over at my, uh, uh, like the time right now, I've got plenty of time, but I looked at my 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 podcasting uh, equipment, my Rodecaster Pro, and I realized I'm like, oh my goodness, this is this is a first, dude, and I'm, I feel like it's it's an honor to have you be the one that that runs this down to to the wire in some degree. But the little um, I don't even know what it is. It's not a SIM card, but uh, the little thing that I that I have, you know, I think it was like 60 hours worth of recording on there. I've kept it on there because I wanted to just keep recording until I got to where it's full. Because I put them on my my computer, so I have the the like the MP3s on my computer downloaded of all my podcasts I've done. But I wanted to wait until I actually filled up the uh, the little whatever it is. I'm not technologically savvy, guys. Just for the record, but basically, I'm down to five minutes and fifty seven seconds before basically I can't record anymore, and I'm going to have to put. You know, put put the podcast on my computer and then upload it to Spotify and all of that, and then take the uh, the card and then wipe it, and then start fresh for another sixty hours or however much is on there of podcasting for the future. And I deliberately wanted to do that. I wanted to see how close we could get to the end of it, uh, you know, of recording, and then do that. So. <laughs> <laughs> Mission accomplished. Mission accomplished, dude. And I, I'm glad I noticed that before. I was like, oh, okay, yeah, we got, we got, you know, less than six minutes. Um, but I, this, so this is the challenge. It's like I'm, I'm kind of seeing like how close can we get to the edge before we fall off? <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like that's the metaphor. Like the, this whole podcast has been kind of getting to the edge and going like, ooh, how far can we get? So we'll keep talking a little bit longer. But I want you to do just, so. Keep that in mind. And guys, if it does just cut off all of a sudden, well, that's kind of a good metaphor for the way that this conversation is. Can you imagine like if, if every single person who is reading scripture, specifically the from the the Hebrew and the Christian, the Judeo Christian worldview, let's say those those literature, and we'll even throw in the Catholic Apocrypha and all the other stuff in the site. You're looking at this. You're striving for truth as hard as you can. You're conversing with people from different perspectives, and you're having conversations that you yourself don't want to have ended, and there's relationship building that's happening, and people are going like, ooh, I've never thought about this. Like, Can you imagine if that was your experience? If every Sunday or Saturday or whenever you try and meet, if that's what you were looking forward to, rather than have to go in and sit down and stand up and listen to the sermon and pay my little 10% or whatever, whatever that, like, this is what I want to encourage. Like, I want to encourage this kind of discussion where I'm like, I don't want it to end, but it's not going to end, but maybe this is a taste of the infinite. Maybe this is a taste of what the kingdom of heaven will be like when it's fully fulfilled in whatever sense. Maybe it'll be the fractal that literally time no longer restrains that we never have to say "Ooh, i'm out of time for the night it just keeps going and we can go backwards and forwards and it never stops (laughs) absolutely (laughs) oh man well do this uh, dude bro (laughs) again guys i've never met brad in person but we're cut from the same cloth like that's absolutely certain in my mind can you share it man 
Say that again. Kindred spirits, man. <laughs> yeah, shout out to uh, to Anne of Green Gables, Anne of Avonlea, you know, for, for the ladies out there who have read that. I remember my mom was a big fan of them and the kindred spirits. And I used to kind of be like, oh, kindred spirits. I'm like, no, there's something to that. And then, you know, maybe my mom and the, the females in the audience kind of pick up on that a little bit differently. Like there's, there is something to that. And maybe if I wanted to say kindred spirits, like... You know, it's the band of brothers idea. It's that, but that's the same thing. It's just stated differently. So, okay, dude. So at least, at least shout out all of the stuff again for uh, just as a, a reminder. So, uh, alternate media, A L T A R, uh, you know, pun fully intended there for alter. So alternate media, that's a website. Uh, shout out some of the the merch and j- just, just do a bunch of shout outs, dude. I want I want people to hear about your stuff. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. No, as the well. the alternate media dot com is the website that we've just recently launched. We also have a Patreon and a YouTube page. Uh, on our website, you'll find one of the articles that I cited heavily tonight uh, called uh, "In the Beginning Was Jesus?" Question mark. Mm-hmm. Um, there's uh, also some stuff up there from an upcoming book project that we're writing uh, about the the more things and uh, connections that Jesus had with the Pharisees of his day. Say, say it again. Um, the more what the 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 more Pharisaic leanings that Jesus had. So yeah, I I, yes. I fully affirm that Jesus was a Pharisee. I, I understand that's not a popular view, but uh, I I think the textual evidence that we get from the gospel narratives is. Uh, insurmountable if you know what to look for. <laughs> and, and here's the thing, dude. When I saw that on Facebook, my first thought was like, I think I disagree with you, Brad, but I want to read because you might persuade me otherwise. <laughs> so I'm actually looking yeah. in, for, in anticipation. I'm, I'm waiting for that to come out because I want to read it. I want to read what you have put down. Oh, shout out this too, because you you said uh, to me after I'd put out the Forbidden Sexuality podcast, you were like, ooh, we just did a podcast on this. So what's the specific podcast on that that you and uh, Seamus put out? Oh, so we we did one. It's not actually on YouTube. Uh, We kind of did it as a private event specifically because the nature of discussion was going to be such that YouTube would have censored it outright. Yeah. So there is a private link uh, that is available. So, like, you know, it's available to be sent, this private link, if you want to uh, listen in on it. We were recording it on multiple platforms, ended up having some uh, technical difficulties, but uh, the message still gets across. And matter of fact, we can discuss that next time, uh, get a little bit more in detail about what the Bible actually says about oral sex and anal sex and you know, a lot of these things because uh, Judaism has quite a bit to say on that also. Yes. And dude, I've, I've used this in conversation even, I think, I think off my podcast at this point, but it, this is something I was going to mention and I'll, I'll shout you out on this on my part too, because I remember you saying specifically to me, you're like, some of this has more to do with kosher law than it does with, you know, the, the Levitical, you know, sexual laws. And I was like, dude, that's funny. <laughs> 
<laughs> but I was like, right. that's true. Like, again, my intuitions were guiding me in that direction, too, with, you know, being guided by, I think, the Holy Spirit as well, the spirit of truth that's supposed to guide us into all truth and praying for that. But when you said that, I'm like, dude, that that's, again, humorous, but it makes sense. It makes sense, and it makes sense of cleanliness and fasting and all these kinds of things. So, yes, at some point I do want to do a podcast with you specifically where we zero in just on that and on Song of Solomon and maybe kind of delve into some of the stuff that was on y'all's private podcast um, and then also put it on mine. And I, I, I feel like this was a good step toward that. So I'm, I'm glad you said that because I was thinking the same thing. So, again, that cut from the same cloth, you know, mind meld. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Okay. Well, oh yeah. It, it, you want to shout out any of other? Uh, I don't know if you want to or not, but the teasers for some of the uh, mugs and and statements, funny you know humor statements you're going to put on them. <laughs> oh yeah, I've got. Uh, I just I just made another one, which is um, it's uh, it's it's I I'm a head out, and it's a quote from Abraham. You know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Basically, I wanted to say that one, but I didn't know if you want to keep under wraps. But yeah, I'm a head out. Probably you're no. basically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've got a we've got a couple of a couple of good zingers on there. We're 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 still working on some other ones. Another one I'm going to come out with because, like on TikTok, my big thing is my bookshelf, right? Like I'm always referencing my bookshelf. Um, that's why my name on TikTok is the bookshelf guy. Um, mm. And uh, so yeah, we're going to come out with another like a T-shirt that says "I like big bookshelves," and I cannot lie. <laughs> That's good. So, guys, if you can't, uh, if anybody listening to this, if you don't recognize that reference, maybe you're too old. <laughs> right. <laughs> but we all know. We're not old we enough. Know. Oh. <laughs> yeah, we're not old enough. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I remember seeing a parody of that, which was, I like big Bibles and I cannot lie. And you could find that on right. YouTube. Right, I remember that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, mama mia. <laughs> Oh, good stuff. Good stuff. I remember seeing that in college back in 2008, 2009, somewhere around that time frame. So (laughs) I think I heard that one before I heard the actual song. I was like, I don't get it. Oh, now I get it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's good. So any any other things you want to shout out? Again, Seamus was a person that's on the podcast with you. Uh, You mentioned a guy named Will Hess, who was part of the the TCS, the the. The Church Split, which is a, a Facebook group that I follow, and it's also the name of a podcast. I haven't listened to that podcast. I, I, I want to. Oh, man. It is an excellent – look, let me plug somebody else's podcast for a minute. Do it. Like, do it. Will, Will Hess's podcast is awesome. The Church Split podcast, it's awesome. Um, they're working on a series right now uh, going over uh, penal substitutionary atonement, and it's excellent. And penal um, so, is not penis. So what is penal, real quick, for those who are wondering? <laughs> yeah, there's a difference between penal and penile. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, penal has to do with, you know, the, um, punishment. Uh, you know, that's why we call it the, the penal system is the, the, uh, the essentially the, the jail system, more or less. The, 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 the court system that would send you to jail and, and, and whatnot, that's... That would be the penal system. So penal substitutionary atonement is essentially the idea that uh, God's wrath was so insatiable that he couldn't just forget about it. So he had to uh, he had to take it out on Jesus instead of you. Mm. 
So that's that's a one that's dealing with that as a and wrestling with the whole doctrines behind all of that and different right. different yeah I think I I think you know what I think I saw a a post on Facebook that was uh like with a link to that or referencing that or something and I thought ooh that would be for me that'd be something I very much like to listen to so I'm going to have to check out this podcast guys but I've I'm shouting it out now cuz I know from the Facebook group alone that it's going to be worth listening to I could just see that <laughs> Absolutely yeah so. no Will is an awesome dude Brian is an awesome dude um, they are, they're, they're right along with us, man. Just seeking truth and what the Bible actually says. Yes. Oh, I, I'm going to shout out this too. Cause we, we both, we both like modest Yahoo. There's a song that I really like by him and I keep quoting this and I've, t- I've shared this quote with other people to introduce them into modest Yahoo and people of all different walks of life, people who've been drugged up when I'm talking with them. Cause I just randomly come across them and they're like, ooh, that's a good statement, and they're they're high, you know, but but they still get it through, and it's uh, it's Modest Yahoo's song Crossroads, and there's a line in it where he says, "I find the most high in cracks that you walk by," and I'm like, ooh, I feel like that's again, it's like God using the little things, the things that people don't notice. It's like, yeah, I'm I'm looking in these cracks over here, you know, the lowly, you know all these different statements but it's like i'm finding god in things that other people don't even notice like that's where god hides his glory that's where god hides himself and things that only the observe and only the people who are looking <laughs> jordan peterson makes a quote or pulls a quote from somebody else i forget who it was who said you know uh, some of these people can't see god because they don't look low enough which is the idea of humility you know of humbling yourself before the lord and he will lift you up um, and so anyway, I love that quote. <laughs> Absolutely. No, my modest Yahoo's got some real zingers, man. His song King without a crown. Ooh, it, like yes. it, it, it is, it is purely about Messiah, which is, I mean, think about that. This is somebody, this is a Jew who does not believe that Jesus is the Messiah. But if you listen to the song, it's, it's clear that he's singing about Messiah and like, it's beautiful. Yes. What's the line? Something, uh, What's this feeling? Uh, I'll rip, it'll rip a hole in the ceiling. I remember something like that. I'm forgetting the quote. Oh, man. I, if you hadn't asked me, I probably could have quoted it. Oh, man. I, I remember on one of the podcasts, me. Seamus quoted it. I remember hearing him quote it. I was like, oh, yeah, he's quoting King without a crown. That was good. So, guys, you'll have to listen to the song to, to get the quote correct. But that's a little teaser. <laughs> oh, man. I cannot think of a good way to wrap this up, dude. And we still have five minutes and forty three seconds, but I feel like we're, we should we should end it. So <laughs> I don't know. Like I, I, I try, guys. I just so everybody knows on this podcast, I try to come up with a good ending when the point comes, and it gets harder and harder because the conversation hasn't ended. Like it's still going. So can you think of a good way to wrap it up, man? I'll I'll throw it to you and see what you can come up with. <laughs> And yeah, let me, I'm, you know, and this is what I do on our, on, on our podcast. Like I'm the closer. (laughs) Okay. There you go. There you go. Um, So I'll, you know, yeah. Say yeah. In, in in closure tonight, you know, uh, we have discussed so many different things, (sighs) but it, it, it really all comes around to one's understanding of God respective to what we can know, can know from the scripture. And, you know, unfortunately, 
that is very uncomfortable sometimes with what we have learned that the Bible says if it doesn't actually say that. Mm. And, you know, part of growing closer to God is being willing to sit through the discomfort of having to unlearn and then relearn something that we might not have been comfortable with. So, you know, I, I would just encourage all of the listeners at this point to, you know, not to uh, not be afraid to go out into those unknown waters, right? mm. not, not be afraid to, to stare into the chaos because there, there will be a sense of order in it somewhere. Mm. Ooh, courage. That's a good, that's, I, that's a good, <laughs> that's a good ending for me. Courage. So Brad, I'll, I'll just say this too. Gratitude. Gratitude is another good, good, you know, closer. Ooh. Um, thank you for coming on the podcast, man. And thank you for just being who you are and questioning the stuff that you question. You know, again, I don't think it's an accident that our paths crossed, um, and that, uh, we kind of hit it off just on the, the Facebook, you know, debates, you know, again, people think debate is like, Oh, it's angry. No, no, no. This was a good debate. This was a back and forth. This was a, you know, that's what started this off. And that's what made me go. I want to reach out to this guy and I want to talk to him on the phone because there's, it's just quicker and easier than having to sit there and type or you know use your thumbs on a you know, texting on a phone. So thank you for coming on the podcast, man. Thank you for being open to questioning stuff and being open to talk with other people who are questioning stuff, coming from a very different background in some ways, and maybe even coming to some similar conclusions through different roads, but still kind of overlapping. Like, so thank you for that. Just thank you for being who you are. <laughs> thank you for having me on, man. This has been a pleasure. Well, same here, same here. And guys, I hope everybody who's listening, and thank you to all the listeners, I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. Um, and if you enjoyed it at least as much as I did, then I think we succeeded. If you enjoyed it more, then whew, that's the overflow. We'll take that too. Um, oh, I think that's about it that I can say. So guys, come back, man, for part two, because it's going to be good. We're going to have more than, hopefully more than a part two, but he's got his podcast, so check it out as well. Uh, again, it's alternate media spelled A-L-T-A-R. We'll have all these links. I'm going to put all these links in the, uh, in the Spotify description, so check those out. Um, get some merch. I'm planning to at least get the Jonah mug, because that one, <laughs> that one's stinking hilarious to me. Probably get the Abraham one when it comes out, and I'll have a pair. I'll have a pair of some good humor drink my coffee from or whatever I put it in so or whatever I put in it rather um guys thanks for listening you've been listening to the Joshua Greeny podcast uh with uh with Bradley Vasquez am I pronouncing that right Vasquez yes Vasquez from the alternate media podcast on YouTube and other other platforms so check them out thank you for listening <laughs>